Hey, this is Ken Finnan, and it's my job to get you past the Series 65 and the Series 66. This might be the most boring video I ever do, but it's going to be a long I was going to curse. You're not supposed to curse in the first, the first 30 seconds of a YouTube video, or they demonetize your ass. We don't need that. Um, this is going to be a long, boring video, but it's going to be very, very valuable. Everyone's telling me that this is going to be the key to passing the Series 65 or the Series 66. It's either going to be one really long video or a bunch of like other videos. I have to see. I will absolutely have to timestamp it because I'm going through a lot of stuff. And what am I going to do? And I'm just going to go down all the terms. And we're going to go through all the terms from various books and get everything. So this will be have a thing. So if you go, what is this? I got that. You just look it up and there it is. And you get a little stupid video with me talking about it. Maybe it put some art around it. Who the hell knows? But let's get going. Okay. So we'll start with, we're in the letter A's, right? Accredited investor. So what is an accredited investor? Well, first of all, what can they do? They're allowed to buy on Regulation D, okay? So accredited investors are kind of rich people. Remember, one, two, three accredited. One million net worth, 200 salary if you're single, 300 if they're miserable. I mean married, okay? One, two, three accredited. They can buy on Reg D with impunity. You can have as many of them as you want. They're rich. And keep in mind, Finner's job is to protect grandma, grandpa. So the so they put a lot of restrictions on retail people. So as they get richer and richer or more and more sophisticated, they get to, what's the best to explain it? They are going to have less protections. Since there's less protections, they let them do more things. It's kind of a trade-off. Like when you're raising a kid, when they're little, you're tight on them. And then toddler a little more, teenager, then adult. And that's what we're doing. So accredited investors are like the high teenagers, like almost an adult, because then we get qualified and quibs and institutions are even higher. So they let them do things. They let them buy on they let them buy on Reg D. Plus, I think they have less restrictions on the on the um, Reg Reg A Reg A plus tier two. But we're not there yet. We're going to get into it. So accredited investors are one million net worth, two hundred salary, single, three hundred if they're I want to say miserable again, but married. Also, if you have a an active Series Seven. Series 65 or an 82. Now, a lot of people I see, and I'll do a separate video on this, want to just get this Series 65 to become accredited, okay? You have to be get the 65 and have it be associated with an IA. You can't just have the license. It has to be an active license. So again, that's accredited investor. Now, accumulation stage or accumulation unit. Accumulation stage or accumulation, we'll, we'll put them together. When you're buying into an annuity, a variable or fixed, you're putting money in. You're putting money in after taxes most of the time if it's non-qualified. So that's the accumulation phase or accumulation stage. And what are you buying? You're buying accumulation units. So when you put the stuff in, you're buying accumulation units, okay? And then they grow in value. Now, if you do a lump sum, you can buy a fixed number of units and then they grow in value. If you do a contract plan, you're paying over every year. You're putting 100 bucks in, 200 bucks a month, whatever it is. That you're gonna, you're actually gonna be buying more and more units every time, which makes sense. Okay. The acid test. Okay, so there's there's a current ratio and then the acid test. The acid test is basically the current ratio without inventory because it's it's a more strict version of liquidity. So current ratio is current assets divided by current liabilities. That's liquidity. Even tighter is current assets without inventory over current liabilities. Now, anything current, I have videos on the current stuff. Current 
assets is anything like that you have or going to get in a year. Current liabilities is anything you owe in the next year or so. Inventory, the reason they take inventory out of the asset test, because it's very strict, is because they want to not count the inventory. Because if, if it was liquid, it would have been sold already. Because you could have all these dresses, like, say, like women who maybe you buy dresses. I don't know if you do anymore, but we'll see. Um, like, you're not going to buy, once spring comes, you're not buying spring dresses. You're buying the next one. So if they have dresses left over and there's two, $300 dresses in the spring, they're listed on the books as $200 dresses, but they're not going for that because no one's paying full price in the spring for spring stuff. Okay. So that's, it's kind of like, it's more fair to take that out and say, listen, we're getting rid of the inventory and then we're doing the liquidity and we'll figure it out from there. So the acid test is a current ratio with current assets without inventory minus inventory taking it out. Okay. Now, <clears throat> an active management style. Okay, passive means like you're rebalancing and you're not trying to beat the market. You may be indexing or benchmarking, but then active is you're actually trying to identify inefficiencies or industries that are going to be going good, or you're going to do sector rotation or even asset uh, asset allocation where you're moving eh, asset allocation. Let's go with sector rotation. You're moving stuff around for industries like during the, the upward cycle, you're going to be buying cyclical stocks. And during the downward, you're going to be doing defensive. You're actively trading to try to find inefficiencies and move the market, okay? And not move the market, but get a better price to beat the market. That's active. It also comes along with more cost because there's more commissions and you're paying for an active manager to live in Greenwich, Connecticut and make a lot of money and not do a whole lot, okay? Act of 1933, the two acts. The Act of 1933 is the primary market, okay? The Act of 1933 is all about the primary market and new issues or for non-exempt securities. It's for new issues, non-exempt securities. So it's going to say, oh, when you, when you, if you're going to issue shares, you have to register them with the SEC, file the registration statement, search a 20-day cooling off period, okay? A 20-day cooling off period. And then it's effective after that. You, They have rules what you can't do. You can't sell the issue. You can't take money. You can't take orders, stuff like that during the 20-day cooling off period. But you can get indications of interest, send out a red herring slash preliminary prospectus, stuff like that. I have all videos on that. You should all understand that the Act of 33 is for primary market. Boom. Act of 1934. The Act of 1934 is for everything else, for violations, for the secondary market. So I have an acronym called MISPERMS. I'll try to put it here or not. I'll just put a link to the video. MISPERMS. It covers margin, insiders, short sales. The SEC created the SEC. Funny, they created the SEC after the Act of 33, but that's funny. P for proxy rules. That's voting by mail. E, all the exchanges and broker-dealers had to register with the SEC. Remember that. IAs register Act of 40 if they're federal, and broker-dealers register the Act of 34, under the Act of 34. With the SEC, but whose rules? R reports, that's like 8Ks, which are just like random reports by issuers. 10Qs are quarterlies. 10K is an annual report, and that one's audited. Then we have M, the last one, manipulation. That's like, like ch not churning, but marking the open, marking the close, pegging. Don't Google that. Um what else do we have in that? We have marking the open, marking the close, pegging. We can do, um, I guess, wash trades, wash sales, all the violations, all manipulation. And remember, they did put it in there that if the SEC decides something is manipulation or fraud, then it is. Because they knew back then, they didn't know everything that would go on, the Ponzi schemes and stuff like that. Um, then the last S is stabilization. Stabilization. 
That allows the underwriter to buy the shares during a new offering when it's at the POP price or lower to hold the price until it gathers some uh, to gather some interest. Okay, it's the only form of manipulation allowed. Okay, adjusted basis. This is basically cost basis. Okay, so we have cost basis, what you paid for something, and then it can be adjusted. Like you, maybe you buy, maybe you buy more, or you sell some, or you do, like if it's a limited partnership, maybe you get a distribution, or maybe you get a return of principal. Adjusted basis is you have your cost basis, and then depending on how you do after that, it's going up or down. And then AGI, adjusted gross income. That's your gross income from all your sources, okay? That's adjusted gross income. And then you would do some things like deductions and stuff. Adjusted gross income is what you're going to be taxed on. Maybe you have IRA deductions, maybe you have distributions and stuff like that, that you're gonna deduct from your income. But then once you do that, that's your AGI, your adjusted gross income, gross income, I'm stuttering, then that's what you'll pay taxes on. And there's nothing left in my capital advantage tutoring cup, okay? It's funny, the one thing that I really like, I don't sell because my wife made it for me for Father's Day. Okay. The administrator. Okay. What's the administrator? The administrator is like the regulator for the state. Each state has their own regulator. It could be a, a person. It could be a team, whatever it is. They have jurisdiction over all securities trades and, re and registrations of securities personnel and securities in the state. They, If it's federal and administrator kind of conflicting overlap, Fed takes precedence. But the administrator absolutely has jurisdiction in their state. They can investigate outside their state if there's jurisdiction. And remember, no regulator ever approves anything ever. So um, if you ever see, oh, the administrator approved, throw it out. It's no good. Okay, adoption. Oh, how cute. No, adoption is if, like, say I talk about your company. I say, oh, you, the viewer, was a great investment advisor, and I put it on Twitter or Facebook or something else. If you don't do anything, no problem. But if you retweet it, like it, share it, copy paste, put it on your website, something to or direct attention to, that's considered adoption. And then you kind of have to treat it as if it's a communication. Okay. So that's when a third party site endorses us. We're endorsed on a third party site. And we, the broker dealer or the IA, either like it, retweet it, refer to it, direct people to it, make light of it make attention to it and that would be adoption and then we have to follow certain rules because we are now part of it as opposed to, i'll talk about entanglement even though it's not in the a's entanglement is when you're the broker dealer or ia actually involved in writing it and that could be illegal or illegal but entanglement is when somebody posts on a third-party website and you help the person write it like you go, oh say this say that and put it over there but we'll pretend we it wasn't us that's entanglement, and that's not a good thing. What's an ADR? An ADR is an American depository receipt that is absolutely a foreign security. So what happens is I'm a bank in the U.S., and I have branches in, let's say, Switzerland. I go, my branch in Switzerland buys a bunch of shares in Nestle, puts them in a package, and then sells that in the U.S. to so this security. So all the securities are in this bucket, and you're buying this ADR. And this will go up and down based on what's happening to the stock in Switzerland. Now, what's cool is that there's an arbitrage sometimes that when the Swiss is closed and we're open, the stock may move on its own without that changing it. So sometimes there's a way to capture a little difference. But either way, it's a U.S. security. You get dividends in U.S. currency. They pay in the foreign, whatever it is. But we, the bank will convert it and you'll get paid 
in U.S. currency. So ADRs are, are representative of foreign securities trading here. Okay, advertising. That's any kind of circular, any writing, any publication, anything else to help you determine whether you should make a buy or sell or use a certain service. So that's ad advertising is when you do anything that is um, to make someone help determine how if they should make a purchase or a sale or something like that, like a recommendation a little bit. That's in advertising. And it has to follow either the state laws or the SEC or FINRA rules. Okay, agency basis. Okay, agency basis is if you're doing a trade on an agency basis, that means you're the middleman. Like you give me an order to buy a thousand shares at 40. I find a seller for you. You must like a realtor with a house. I find a seller. I match him up. You buy You buy from that person through me. I charge a commission and we go on our way. That's agency. We charge a commission. All it is. Since we're here, that's remember ABC, agent, broker, commission. Now, the other side, print, principal side is principal, dealer, markup, PDM. Principal, dealer, markup, okay, is a principal order. If you get it acting as a principal, you're acting as a dealer, you're doing a markup, okay? What does that mean? That means you're getting involved. You give me an order to buy a 1,000 shares at 50. I go buy it and then turn around and sell it to you at like 50-50, so you give me an order to buy a thousand shares at 50. I go buy it. I turn around and sell to you at 50, 50, and I charge you a markup. That would be a risk as principle because I'm not taking a chance. Or what if I'm not taking a chance because I'm not buying it until you give me the order, okay? By the way, I have to disclose that to you. Now, on the other side of principle is what if I already own the shares? You give me an order to buy stock at 50. I'll sell it to you at $50.50 and say, I charge you a 50 cent markup. That's where I have risk because if the stock may go up or down while I own it. What's an agency cross-transaction? An agency cross-transaction is you give me an order to buy 10,000 shares of IBM at 50. You're going to beat up IBM. Then I go, wait a second. You know what? Johnny or whatever, I know they wanted to sell IBM. So I call them up and say, hey, I have a buyer. Do you want to sell it? And I go, understand I'm doing both sides. I have to disclose this. I have to say, I have a buyer. Do you want to sell it? And they go, sure, they sell it. So I'm going to tell the buyer that I, I'm doing it internal. I'm going to cross it. So I basically take my buyer and my seller and cross them, and then I charge a commission on both sides. That's an agency cross-transaction. There are principal cross-transactions, not really testable. They can do that where I'm going to buy it from this person and sell it to that, and they charge a markup on both. doesn't matter. But again, agency is where I take a buyer that came in, I find a seller, and boom. Or if a seller comes in, I find a buyer, and then I just cross both sides. It's kind of like if you go to buy a house and you call the realtor, and then the realtor goes, oh, I have a listing one of my listings is the perfect house for you. So they sell you the house and they, ha and they have the buy and the sell listing. They get commissions on both sides. I think there's some loopholes to that, but that's the idea of it. What is an agent? An agent is an individual that works for a broker dealer on the state level, okay? On the FINRA level, we call them registered reps, but on the state level, we call them agents. Agents, you have to take the 63 or the 65, 66. You work for a broker dealer executing transactions. Remember, you're, you're an individual. Agents are always individuals. They work for the broker dealer, executing transactions on behalf in securities on behalf of the of the broker dealer. They may charge commissions or not. I was in, I was I worked in the stock exchange for 20 years. I never got a commission. It was bonuses. I got salary and bonuses based on how, based on how much money we made trading and how much business we generated. It wasn't a direct commission. We just got bonuses based on that. Now. Agent, so what's not an agent, right? So that's an agent. Agent works for the broker-dealer. They register at the FINRA level and the state level, wherever they have a place of business, they have retail clients, whatever. 
Now, what's not an agent is if your client's on vacation, you don't have to register there. But the other one is if you work for an issuer, not the broker dealer, if you're an agent and you work for the issuer, okay, you work for the issuer and you do exempt securities or exempt transactions for no commission, they're not going to make you register, okay? What's aggressive trading? That just means you're being speculative, aggressive. You're trying to beat the market. That's all it is. Okay. Okay. What's an all or none order? So let's talk about order types since we're in here. It's an O, but it's an A. All or none means, uh, so let's start with the beginning. I give you an order to buy at the market. You just buy it at any price. If I give you an order to buy at a limit, I say, listen, buy a thousand shares at 50. I'm going to do that price all the time. I give you a thousand shares. I give you a thousand shares to buy at 50. You are going to buy it at 50 or lower, 50 or better. If I give you an order to sell a thousand at 50, you're going to sell it at 50 or higher. Okay. That's a regular limit order. And if I buy, if I give you the order to buy a thousand shares at 50 and you only buy 300 and then at the end of the day, I have nothing else. Well, then we cancel the seven. I take the three because that's what it is. But what if I have to take the partial execution? I have to. Now, what if I don't want that? I can do an all or none. I go, look, buy a thousand shares at 50, all or none, which means one, it doesn't have standing in the book because it's a, you know, it's a special kind of order. But I give you an order by 1,000 shares at 50 AON or none. That means if you don't buy all 1,000 in one shot, I don't want it. Now, you can leave it out there all day trying to do it. But it's an all or none, meaning I do all of it or I don't want any of it. So you can't buy like 200, 200, 200, 200, 200. You have to buy all 1,000 in one shot. But you can wait all day to do it. You buy all 1,000 in one shot or I won't accept it. So you don't do it. Another one, a version of that is an immediate or cancel, which means I want you to buy a thousand shares at 50. Try to get as much as you can. You can buy 300, 400, a thousand, but then put it out there once and then cancel it right away. I don't want to be out there. That's an immediate or cancel. Another type is a fill or kill. A fill or kill is fill it or kill it. So it means it's a combination of an all or none in IOC. That means buy, I give you a thousand shares to buy fill or kill. You go out there right now. You try to buy a thousand shares at 50, you will not buy anything less than a thousand or you don't do it. And then if you don't do that, you cancel right away. They're specialized orders kind of bratty. Okay. What's alpha? Okay. Alpha. So first you have to get alpha, you have to know beta. Beta is a is a volatility compared to the market, risk, whatever it is. So if like think of alpha as what you do better than expected. Okay. Positive alpha, you did better than expected. Negative alpha, you did worse than expected. So if you have a, let's just do this. So let's say you have a beta of 1.5, 1.5. That's a multiplier. You're going to multiply beta times the, the, the index. So if the index, I'll make, do easy numbers. The index is 10%. You have a beta 1.5. You're going to do 1.5 times the index. That means you're expected. Your portfolio is expected to do 15%. Fair, that's your expected return. But what if you actually do 17? You're expected to do 15, but you did 17. So that means you did two points better. That's two points of alpha. That's all alpha is. Alpha is what you do better, and it's kind of like non-systematic. It's basically what you're doing. It's what you're, you're doing better than you expected after netting. Here's the thing. Some of the vendors like to talk about the risk-free rate and do that. I don't really care about that. I'm just saying alpha is you're doing better than expected, and it's compared to your expected return. AMT, alternative minimum tax. Okay, AMT is an alternative minimum tax. It's for when you have some sort of tax deduction pro product that is tax deductible, if you want to call about it. We'll talk about them. Where they take away your deductions. The more you make an in income, the less you're allowed to deduct. So certain revenue bonds, not all of them, certain revenue bonds, they take all the money you're getting that's tax-free. If you make too much money or if it's subject to AMT, they're going to say, you know what? 
you can't take all of that. Say you made 50 grand from a revenue bond and you make a lot and they go, you know what? Yeah, normally if it's a GO or you're a normal person, you can you don't have to pay taxes on that 50, but we're going to make you pay taxes on like half of that or all of it, whatever it is. But that's AMT is just takes away your deductions and it's only applicable to really revenue bonds, not GO and limited partnerships. So if you see a tax preference item or the word excessive deductions or excessive write-offs, they might be subject to AMT where the AMT will go, you know what? You can't take those deductions. You have to give it back. And that's where this thing called recapture, which you may or may not see. Recapture is not a good thing. Recapture is you take a deduction and the IRS goes, no, we got one. We want that back. We're not giving you that deduction. You got to pay taxes on that. Okay. If you do a, if you anti-dilutive covenant. So if you do a, if you do a uh, convertible bond, now remember, so if you have a convertible bond and say it's going to turn into 50 shares, okay? And so that's great. It's awesome. Whatever percentage of the ownership, that's really freaking tiny, but it is a percentage that you can count on. But what happens is if the company issues more shares, well, then you're still only getting the 50. So the anti-dilutive covenant adjusts your ratio up based on, so if you have, if you're normally going to get 50 shares and they do a 10% stock dividend or a temp, add another, issue another 10 so if they do a 10% stock dividend or a stocks or a stock split, they're going to adjust your ratio to accommodate for that. You won't have to do the math on these exams, but just understand that if you have an anti-dilutive covenant on your convertible bond, they're going to adjust the ratio or the number of shares you get to, to keep your percentage ownership. Arbitrage. What is arbitrage? Arbitrage is when you capture an inefficiency in the market in two different markets, not the same market, two different markets. So like, if I, when I was on, when back in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was less electronic. So if on the New York Stock Exchange, you saw IBM trading at $40 and you also saw it trading at $41 on the Pacific or the P-Coast, okay? You're like, wow, I can make money. So you would buy the stock on the New York at $40 and at the exact same time, not a second later, exact same time, short the stock at 41 in the P-Coast. And then you just, when you would just use the shares you bought to cover your short, you'd make a dollar, lock it in, no risk. That's a type of arbitrage. Other ones are merger arbitrage. When one company's taken over another for stock, there'll be differences and you buy one and short the other to capture it. Not math, not, you're not going to have to do that. That's called merger arbitrage, risk arbitrage. That's what I did when I first started. Then we have convertible arbitrage where if you buy a bond and you notice that if you were to convert and it would be a profit, that means the common stock converted if you the amount of shares you get when you convert the bond convertible bond you get a certain amount of shares right we should know this by now whatever that's worth okay if that's less than if that's more than what the bond that you can buy is worth you can buy the bond and short this the amount of stock at the same time and then convert the bond and cover your short just remember convertible arbitrage is for convertible bonds when it would be profitable to convert mean ar arithmetic mean is just basically average you take all your numbers you add them up and divide say if you have five numbers you add them all up and then you divide by five that's the arithmetic mean that'll be tested if even maybe more than geometric mean geometric has a lot more parts to it where it's like well how much traded at each number and then you divide that and add it that we always used to use that for um fine weighted average price trades but you won't have to know that. Just know if you see the word mean, it's average. And some exams make you decide between arithmetic and geometric. They're not going to. The real exam won't vendors do because they're jerks. Okay. Okay. Ask. Okay. What's the ask? 
So there's bid and ask. So we have the bid, which is where people are willing to buy. And the ask is where people are willing to sell. That's the bid ask that creates the inside market. Okay. The bid is where people are willing to buy. The ask is where people are willing to sell. If you want to buy stock, you have to pay. You have to buy it where people are willing to sell. So you pay the ask. And if you're going to sell, you're going to sell at the bid because that's where people are willing to buy. Because you buy at the ask, you sell at the bid. Okay. And the difference is the spread of the inside market. Okay. So let's talk about, it's not really, it's an A, but if you sell, if you want to give somebody a gift of securities, really nice, feel free to send it to me. I'll give him a Venmo, whatever. Um, if you want to give me something, um, if you give me a non-assessable security, then it's a gift. It's fine. Because a non-assessable security means you give it to me. It's like giving me shares of Tesla. They, they'll never ask me for more money. But an assessable security means they can assess you and ask you to put more money. And I like to think limited partnerships are them. They don't say it's definitely, but I think why wouldn't they be? Because if you buy a limited partnership, they can always ask you for more money because it's a partner call. So a margin call, whatever you want to call it. I guess it's a partner call. So if I give you an assessable security, that is considered an offer and a sale and it's subject to the jurisdiction. Even if I say here, here's $20,000 worth of this assessable security. Don't worry about paying me, whatever. The fact that they, the issuer could ask you for more money means it's accessible and that's considered an offer and a sale and subject to the jurisdiction of the administrator of the state. Okay. What is an asset? Basically, it's basically something that a corporation or a person owns. Okay. An asset is what you own. And there's two types. There's current assets, which is like stuff you own like now, cash, or going to get in a year. And then there's fixed assets like equipment, buildings, long-term shit like that. Okay, asset allocation. All you're doing is dividing it up, but you're dividing your portfolio up between like stocks, bonds, cash, shit like that, okay? You're just, it's just, you're allocating a certain percentage of your portfolio to certain asset classes. That's all it is. Now, we talked about this before. A 10K is audited, is basically the issuer issuing audited financial statements. What does that mean? Audited means it's audited by a CPA or an auditing firm. And advisors have to do that. If you have custody, they have to do an annual surprise audit where they their financials are going to be audited and they have to submit them. Okay, that's the A's. Let's go to B. So, well, I'm going to throw in here. So let's, let's well, let's, that's the A's. Well, let's jump into the B's for a second. So a back-end load, well, we're going to, we have to know. So mutual funds have front-end loads, class A, should be in the A's, right? Class A is a front-end load, it's probably in the F's. Um, like Raider O'Reilly filing system. So A is in A, A shares is a front end load. B is what they call a back end loan or a CDSC, contingent deferred sales charge. So A is a front end load. B is a back end loan, contingent deferred sales charge. What does that mean? That means that you pay when you leave, when you redeem the shares, okay? You don't pay anything when you come into the fund. And it, the longer you stay. So it deferred, that's the contingent deferred. The deferred means you pay when you leave. And the contingent means the longer you stay, the lower it gets. That's why it's called the contingent deferred or a back end. It's good for long-term. A lot of places don't do them anymore. A is good for long-term, a lot of money because they have break points, which I'm sure we'll get to. And then C shares center here. Um, they don't really pay a sales charge. So they can't be called a no load because they usually have a very high 12B1 fee. A no load fund has no sales charge but a very low 12B1 fee, under 0.25% or 25 basis points. Okay, what's a balanced fund? A balanced fund is basically, they always have all portions. It's basically going to be, you know, like it doesn't have to be 33% bonds, 30%, 33% preferred, 33% common, okay? And they're going to give both income and growth. They're going to give both income and growth, 
but they kind of are safer or they diversified because they have all three stocks, preferreds, bonds. That's a balanced fund. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about balance of payments and balance of trade. Okay. Balance of payment is like basically how much money is going out versus coming in. It's for the most part exports and imports, right? So if we have, if we, uh, you know what? Here, I think I have a way of doing it. So, okay, good. So let's say, so this is the upside. This is the surplus. The more we export, the more we export. Remember, the more we export, the more money we're getting, okay? So if we bring in money, if we bring in more money and we export more goods, people are buying our stuff, so we're getting cash. And if we're export, if we're importing, that means we're buying other people's stuff and then our money's going out. So what happens is, is that let's say the dollar the dollar rises. So just hear me out on this, okay? So the dollar rises, that means it's harder for people to buy our stuff because it's more expensive. So if that happens, we're going to go more toward this way. As the dollar rises and rises, we're going to go down, okay? We're going to be importing more because our dollar will buy more stuff, so we'll buy more things. Always money runs downhill. So here, now what, as the dollar starts dropping, it's going to get lower. So this is right now. So if we look at this, what I've done so far is that our deficit is increasing. So our deficit, our balance of trade is going negative. It's going to be deficit is going down. Now, and that's good. The dollar's rising. We're importing more. We're spending more money. But as the dollar maybe starts dropping, our deficit is going to get closer to zero. And because people are going to, we're going to get more, more and more closer to exporting. And then if the dollar really goes down, we're going to be exporting more and more and more. So the more the dollar drops, the more we go up, okay? We start exporting more, and that means we have more money coming in. So I always say, do we want a strong dollar or a weak dollar? We, we say we want a strong dollar, but we actually want a weak dollar because if we have a weak dollar, people can buy our stuff more. So you have more exports. So all the foreign money is coming here. So this way we have a surplus on our balance of payments versus a deficit. So we'd like a surplus. And look, it's not this. It's like, if depending on what, you know, maybe corn's here and then wheat is here. And then oh, it all depends on what we do. As a general rule, I think we're still on the importing more than exporting. But we'd love to be on the exporting more than importing because then money's coming in. Like with oil, if, you know, it's like we we were we were importing more and then we were exporting more and now we're importing again. So it goes all over the place. And the problem is it costs us money and that hurts. Now, exporting is good because it helps our our farmers, our producers, all that stuff. They can sell their stuff to bigger and bigger markets. And that's the thing. So like if you have a weaker dollar, right? So if your dollar is weaker, if you stay inside the country, you'll never freaking know. Like if you're in the middle of Mississippi and you're, you've never left the state, whether the dollar is strong or weak doesn't matter to you on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you're a farmer, a weak dollar means more. there's more people buying your stuff maybe from other countries. So that's that's the balance of paid, balance of trade. Okay. Okay. The balance sheet is basically just a financial condition. It's like a snapshot. It's a snapshot of the financial condition of the company. It has assets and liabilities on it. That's it. Assets and liabilities. And it's supposed to sort of balance out, right? Um, income statement is not that. Income statement is more about cash flows and money in, money out. So Gross sales, gross income, that's going to be on the cash flow statement or the income statement. They're different things, but they kind of do the same. Um, balance sheet is about assets and liabilities. And again, some guy who's a probably a CFA is, wait, you shouldn't say that. I'm talking about test world, not real world. A bank. So there's a bank and a bank holding company. So a bank is where you put your money. That's a bank and they're exempt from everything. Remember, 
on the under NASA and the states, banks are pretty much fucking ghosts. Okay, nobody knows what they are. They, no, it's not that they don't know what they are. They just have no regulations. They have their own regulations. They're pretty much ghosts. They're not issuers. They're not broker dealers. They're not IAs. They're exempt from all that shit or excluded, whatever you want to call it. Now, bank holding companies are none of that. Okay, bank they're really exempt, but I should have said excluded. I'm just rambling. Bank holding companies are none of that. A bank holding company is literally just a company that owns a bank. That's all it is. It's a company that owns a bank. They're not exempt. So like, think of like JP Morgan, okay? JP Morgan owns JP Morgan Securities and Chase. Chase is the bank. Chase, if they issued bonds, would be exempt. JP Morgan would not. Now, JP Morgan is exempt because it's trading on the exchange, but if they didn't, they would have to register anything they issued because they're not exempt. Bank holding companies are not exempt, okay? Basis, just remember the word basis freaking means yield to maturity, okay? Basis means yield to maturity. Now, the next one is basis points. Remember, 100 basis points. I'll put it on here. I've been doing this for years. Other people use it, but it's fine. I don't care. I'm ready to share the wealth. 100 basis points equals $10 equals 1% equals 1 point. Okay, on a bond. So, so if you if you earn two hundred basis points or two hundred bips, you're in two percent or you're twenty bucks a bond. There you go. One hundred basis points equals ten dollars equals one percent equals one point. Boom. Onward we go. Okay. Um. Okay. Bearish and bullish. I guess we can talk about that. So bearish means you think it's going down. A bear market means it's going down. Again, it usually means it's down twenty percent, but don't worry about that. They're not going to ask you what is officially about market because a bear market is when the market has dropped 20%. Okay. Bear just means down. Bull means up, right? Okay. Bear down, bull up. It's like bulls gore up, bears swipe down. Whatever. However, we remember it. Remember, you can make money either way as a bull or as a bear. It's not like bears lose money and bulls make money. It's You can be bullish and make money or you can be bearish and make money. And let's see. So if you're bearish, short stock, buy puts, sell calls. Credits, credit call spreads, debit put spreads, stuff like that. Um, inverse ETFs. If you're bullish, you buy regular ETFs, you buy calls, you buy stock, you do debit call spreads, credit put spreads, buy calls, sell puts. All those things are bullish. Okay. What's benchmarking? Okay. Benchmarking is when you your portfolio is going to be benchmarked to an index. It's low cost. It's usually very passive because all you're doing is matching to a benchmark or an index and you're just sitting on that, okay? Index out, indexing, all the same thing in general. Very passive and you only kind of rebalance once a quarter. So if something gets out of skew or the index rebalances, you're going to rebalance too. You're not very active. The costs are lower than an active strategy. Black-Scholes, just know that it's the way they... um it's the way they measure options for the risk, okay? It's how they price options. That's all you have to know. Black Shoals, you're just pricing options, okay? Blue Sky Laws, okay? What's a Blue Sky Law? So Blue Sky Laws are the state laws. That's all they are. They're, it's basically registering a security, a broker-dealer, an agent, IR, with the state. That's all they are. Blue Sky Laws are just about registering with the state, okay? Okay, my favorite word, bona fide or bona fide, depending who you are, it just means real, okay? It means it's actually going to happen. It's genuine, authentic. It's actually going to happen. It's the thing, okay? So a bona fide offer is a real offer. A bona fide trade is a real trade. Bona fide market-making activity is real market-making activity. It's not like fake to pretend something. It's authentic. It's real. Okay, what's a bond? A bond is a form of debt issued by a corporation, 
by um, by an issue by an issuer who is a corporation, a municipality, or a government, and it's a debt where you lend them money and they pay you back over time, and you get an interest either interest every six months or at the end if it's a zero coupon. Or yeah, it's, those are really two choices. What's a bond fund? Now here's the thing. So an income fund isn't. So this is where people get confused. An income fund isn't going to be bonds. It doesn't have to be. Okay, but a bond fund will be corporates, munis, treasuries. Okay. So a bond fund is going to be it's going to be looking for stable income that's pretty freaking safe. Corporates, munis, treasuries, bond ratings. We know these, right? So the higher the rating, the better the company, right? So AAA is the top, then AA, then A, then triple B. Now triple B is the lowest investment grade. Now if it's Moody's, it's BAA instead of triple B. They use A. instead of saying saying like S and P is AA. Why don't I just do it this way, right? It's just stupid. This is S&P. This is Moody's. Why is Moody different? Because he's fucking Moody, okay? So these are all investment grade. BA and lower, so it would be B down here, and then B. These are all speculative or junk or high yield. This line is big, okay? This line between them, and that's why I make the space, is big. Because literally almost anyone can buy this. A lot of institutions and banks and stuff can't buy speculative. Okay, let's talk about the bond yield. So we have coupon is just the annual stated interest rate. If you buy a 5% bond, a regular bond is paying 50 bucks a year. That's nominal stated interest coupon. They all mean the same thing. Current yield, we should know this. Current yield is what you're earning based on what you spent. So if you think about it, there's a current. If you, current, current is electricity. What do they have in their amps? AMP. So it's AMP, annual over market price. Current yield is annual over market price. The other yields are the basis, which is yield to maturity, which you'll never have to figure out, and yield to call, which, again, you won't have to figure out. But, again, if it's a discount bond, it's coupon, current, yield to maturity, yield to call. That's on a discount. That's the lowest high. Coupon's the lowest, then current, then yield to maturity, then yield to call. And if it's a – I'm going to break my arm. I'll do it this way. If it's a premium, it's going to be coupon up here, then current, then yield to maturity, yield to call. Remember, yield to call is always on the end. A lot of people flip them. Yield to call is always on the end. Remember that. Okay, book value, it's basically the net worth of each share. So book value is like, think of the tangible assets of a company, the furniture, the trucks, the buildings, the equipment, all that stuff is that, and they divide that up by the number of shares, that's the book value per share. So the book value of the company is like the liquidation value, it's what it's all the tangible assets are worth, and that's the book value. Book value per share is that divided by the number of outstanding shares. And then price to book is the market price divided by that number, okay? That works. And a high price to book or even a high price to uh, earnings means it's a growth company. Low means it's a value. Okay. Breadth of the market. Okay. So the breadth of the market is just this. It's we look at how many shares are up or down in the day, not how much, how many. So we look at how many shares are up on the day versus how many are down. Okay. So like if you ever look on CNBC, they have the heat map. Like the other day it was all red. Like maybe today it was all green. But if you look at it, if the markets sound big, you may look at it and you have like, say there's 500 stocks, 498 of them are red. So that's that's the breadth of the market showing you that it's up or down, how deep it is. Because look, there were some years when the tech stocks were so up that even the market was mostly down. Those like 10 names were bringing it up, okay? Like you'd see a big market, you'd see mostly red, but the market was up because those stocks who were very big 
would pull the stock, pull the market up, even though everything was down. So that's what you look at, the breadth of the market. It's to say, okay, the market's down. Is it like half red, half green? Is it all green? Is it all red? You get an idea of how strong this. Okay, the brochure. So what's the brochure? The brochure is a form ADV, part two, okay? Part two A. So part ADV, part one is what you file with the register, with the uh, either the administrator or the SEC, whatever it is. That's the facts, like, you know, what the name is, who the principals are, what kind of customers you have, how much money you have under management, all that crap. It's the facts. Where you're registered, shit like that. Part two is a disclosure docs, okay? That's the disclosures where you disclose everything. So that's called the brochure or ADV part 2A, okay? ADV part 2A is the disclosures for the firm. You know, if they have any conflicts of interest, how they manage the money, how, you know, how they get the fees, any kind of past problems, all that shit. But that's part 2A. Now, the brochure supplement is 2B, okay? 2B, you're not 2B. So I'll put a Caesar thing here, right? So 2B or not 2B. Oh, my God. I can't believe I said that. The 2B is the brochure supplement. That's like for your, you or your team. So you may have a team and it'll be like the 2B will be like, oh, John is, he went to Oxford, blah, blah, blah. And Mary went to Penn, you know, UPenn and someone went to Stanford or someone went to Stockton, whatever it is. Those are all the different it's all their education and their conflicts and how they do the money and their expertise and all that. It's the disclosures for you. So 2A is for the firm. 2B, see, I should do the Pomodoro method and have that phone in another room, right? Um, 2B is a brochure supplement. Now, both of them have to be delivered at or prior to the signing of the contract. That's the rule. That's a brochure rule. The brochure rule is they both have to be at or prior to the signing of the contract. But the state also adds in, hey, that's fine. But if you don't give it to them 48 hours before they sign the contract, the customer gets five days to back out a free look. OK, so, again, the brochure rule is always deliver at or prior to the signing of the contract. OK, but the state adds in the old we want it 40 hours ahead of time. And if, but if you don't, it's not a big deal. But if you don't do it, then you got to give them five days out. That's all it is. That's probably like four questions on the exam. OK, what's a broker? Well, let's say broker dealer. We'll solve that. A broker-dealer is a firm or a person, right? It's always a person, but it's always a firm that executes transactions for themselves or others. They register with the SEC, FINRA, and any state they do business in. If they don't have an office or retail clients, then they don't have to register. Remember, no office, no retail, no register. No office, no retail, no register, okay? That is a broker-dealer. It's a firm, as opposed to an IA that gives advice. It's not here. It's wrong letters. But the IA, and I'll get to it, investment advisor is a firm that gives advice as a business for compensation. Ooh, ABC, advice, business, compensation, okay? And they rather register either the state or the SEC, never both, okay? So a broker-dealer registers with SEC, Fender, and any state they do business in, and they are a firm. A broker-dealer is always a firm, and they execute. So always remember, broker-dealers execute transactions. They collect commissions, markup, markdowns, and some fees, IAs. They, they give advice and they charge you fees for the advice. We already talked about bull market. Okay, business cycles. These are the four cycles, right? So we have expansion, peak, contraction, trough, okay? That's so expansion is when the GDP is rising. We have inflation and the Fed is tightening during that to slow it down. Then we have peak, which is like it's coming up and it's going to start dropping. That's when everything's still going up. We may have disinflation, which means it's still going up, but it's starting to drop, okay? Um, so it's going up, but not as fast. Oh, my jaws, I guess I'm talking too much. Now, just what I do. Okay, so now, 
And then what happened is right during that, the Federal start loosening a little bit because they want it to go down. They want they don't want it to go down. They just want it to go down hard. They know it's going to happen. So they kind of do a so they want a soft landing, right? So what's going to happen is going to start lowering rates and loosening. So during expansion, they sell treasuries and raise rates. That's monetary policy. And that's going to tighten and slow it down. And then once it starts going and they fuck it up and they make it go down, they're going to go, whoa, we got to help out. So they're going to lower rates and buy treasuries. So they're going to buy treasuries from the banks and lower the rates to make it easier to borrow. So it goes expansion, peak, contraction. And if it's a long contraction, it's a recession. And then it goes to a trough. Now, what's the definition of a recession? Well, it's um, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. Although this year they go, well, that's not really true. But we go by that. Um, or you can say my neighbor's out of a job. What's the definition of a depression? Well, that's six quarters or 18 months of negative GDP growth, or I'm out of a job. So recession, my joke, I didn't make it up. I stole it. A recession is my neighbor's out of a job. A depression is I'm out of a job. <laughs> business risk is non-systematic, okay? Non-systematic risk is business risk that you invest in a company that just sucks. How do you get rid of that? You get rid of it by diversifying, okay? Business risk, you just get rid of it by diversifying. And how do you do that? You buy, you buy mutual funds immediately, really quick. You buy ETFs, mutual funds, closed-end funds, ETNs. ETNs not really, but similar. Okay, so you have trust. We have some sort of trust. I'm going to just do an order. Bypass trust is this. I'm married. I have, say I have a lot of money. Oof, please. Okay. So let's say I have a lot of money. I set up a bypass trust. So what happens when I die, all the money is in a trust to go to my wife tax-free. And she can use the money or he, whatever. She they can use the money anyway, according to the trust rules, but the money's for them. But when she dies, the money goes to the children or the financial beneficiary. So a bypass trust is this. I have money. I set up a trust. When I die, my spouse gets it. They manage it. They're the trustee. And then when she dies, then the money goes to the children. And usually if they do it right, they, it's tax-free. So that's what a bypass trust is. Okay, we're on to the C's now. Let's go. We're going in order, alphabetical, short order. Okay, I just did a video on this. Calendar year versus fiscal. A calendar year ends on December 31st. A fiscal year ends whenever they want. Like the government does October 1st, it starts. I think charities do July 1st. It doesn't matter. It's just a year. Fiscal is a year other, any 12-month period other than the calendar year. Okay. A call. What's a call? So there's a couple of things. A call is an option to buy stock. Okay, we got that. A call is also when a company calls back their calls back their bonds or their preferreds. They buy them back from you. Call is always about buying. So if you if they if you buy a call, an option, you have the right to buy stock or whatever. If the a company calls that they're buying the bonds or the preferred back. Okay, we have bonds, callable bond. That's a bond that is callable, which means the company can buy it back, as opposed to a non-callable bond which is one that they can't call it back. They can buy it in the market if you're willing to sell it to them, but they can't buy it. They can't They can't take it from you, a non-callable. Callable, they can. A non-callable would have a lower coupon because it's more attractive to the investor. Callable preferred, literally the same thing. It's a preferred that is callable. So again, we have bonds and preferreds. They are both callable and non-callable. When I get to that, I'm probably not going to talk about it. The call date, that's literally the date that they can start calling the bonds back. So if they say, oh, a bond, say a bond's issued in 2023, wow, and it's callable in 2028, that means the first time they can call it, that's the first date when they can start calling it that's listed in the prospectus. Call feature is, call feature, call provision, same thing. They're basically the ability to call the bonds back. 
That's what a call provision or call feature is, is it is the method or the allowance of the issuer to buy the bond back from you. They, and they'll say it's not callable for the first five years. That's also called call protection. Call protection is the number of years that the issuer can't buy it back. So you're sort of protected from being called. That's most attractive when interest rates are dropping because normally issuers will buy the bond back when rates are dropping because then they can buy it back at a cheaper rate. They can buy it back and then issue a new bond at a lower rate and save money. What's called risk? Well, when interest rates drop, the risk that the company will buy the bond back. And why is that bad for you? That is bad for you because if you're the investor and they call it back, they usually do that when rates are lower. So you get your money back. You're like, yeah, I got my money back. And then when you go to reinvest it, there's everything's at a lower rate. So you would actually have to find a riskier bond to match the rate you were getting before. So that's not a good thing. What's capital appreciation? It's literally growth, an increase in what you own. If you buy something at 40 and it goes to 50, that's capital appreciation. What's a capital asset? A capital asset is basically something you can touch, like property, and it's for long-term, like equipment or a building or something. That's a capital asset as opposed to a current asset, which is for a year or less. Okay, CAPM, capital asset pricing model. CAPM is basically trying to determine the relationship between risk and reward, systematic risk and reward. Are you getting enough return for the risk you're taking? To get this reward, you need this risk. Uh, this risk, you better get this reward. So it's all about the relationship between risk, systematic risk, and reward. Capital gain, that's actually a realized appreciation. So if you buy stock at 50 and you sell it and you sell it, you have to have a gain, a cost basis, and a proceeds. You have to have a buy and a sell. So capital appreciation, capital gain is when you realize the capital appreciation, okay? Capital gain is when you buy stock, it goes up, and then you sell it for a gain. Or if you're short stock and it drops and you buy it for a gain, and it's a taxable event, okay? Capital gain is when you have a buy and a sell or a sell and a buy and you actually realize the gain. Capitalization, that's basically all of what the company's worth. You add up the debt, the stock, and everything else, all their cash and everything, and that gives you the capitalization, what it's worth. Okay, so capitaliz capitalization ratio is dividing its debt by all its capitalization, the bonds, the stocks, all the other surpluses, cash, and all that. So it's debt divided by the capitalization. It's to determine, we do the capitalization ratio to determine whether the company is over-leveraged or under-leveraged. So if you have the debt capitalization ratio, if you have more debt, if you have a very high capitalization ratio, that means you have a lot of debt and you're, you might be over-leveraged. What's a capital loss? That's the opposite of a capital gain. A capital gain is when you sell stock or something for more than you bought it for. You have a gain that's taxable. A capital loss is when you sell something for less than you bought it for and you realize a loss. And actually, you get to write that off your taxes, right? Good stuff. Now, capital losses, you can use capital losses to offset all capital gains, but you can only use three grand of capital losses to offset your income. Then you can carry forward the rest to the next year. Okay, so we have capital market and then we have money market. So capital market is like long-term debt and equities, anything over a year, and then money markets are under a year. Technically, I think 13 months kind of works, but anything over a year is a capital market. Money markets is anything a year or less or really short term. Capital stock is all of the corporation's equity, preferred and common. Boom. But they're listed at par. So it's not the actual market value. It's the par value. Remember, so par value on common stock is a dollar. On preferred is 100. So it's all the common and preferred with based on their par value, not on the market value. So capital surplus, 
Paid in capital, paid in surplus all mean the same thing. Capital surplus, paid in capital, paid in surplus all mean the same thing. Those are all what you sell the stock for over par. Now, common is usually a dollar. So if you sell, if you do an IPO with the stock at 20 bucks, it's $19 of capital surplus, paid in capital, paid in surplus. Capping, what's capping? It's manipulation. It's ready to keep the stock down. So there's capping, pegging, all that stuff. Again, don't Google pegging, please. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stop right there. Don't do it. You're going to hate me. Okay. Capping is when you, you're selling something or doing something to push the price down so it doesn't go over a price. A lot of times it's to either make your P&L look good or to prevent an option from being exercised or to force an option to be exercised. Pegging is when you buy and sell to make it close at a certain price. Remember, capping is keeping it down. Pegging is trying to get it to go up. You're going to buy or sell to get it closed at a certain price. Very similar to capping, just it's both buying and selling. What's a cash account? A cash account as opposed to a margin account. A cash account is where you pay 100% for everything. So there's really two types of accounts. There are other little nuances, but for the most part, we have cash accounts where you pay 100% for all your stock and everything. You can't shorten it. Um, you can do some options in it, but you can't You can't really short or use, you're not borrowing. And then there's a margin account. A margin account is when you borrow against it. You take on, you, you had a debit balance, you can shorten it. You're borrowing money to buy stock. So I have a margin account. That before I had two grand in it, I can only do cash transactions, pay for everything. Once I had two grand in equity in the account, I could start borrowing against it up to 50% of the value of the stock. What's a cash dividend? A cash dividend is when your company pays its profits in the form of cash. So there's cash dividend, there's stock dividend, and then there's product, okay? So they can give you like Gillette, can give you razors. I'd be pissed. But like I said, that's when I was a kid. I bought Playboy stock, hoping it never happened, okay? Although the, the annual report was pretty cool. It's the only annual report with a picture of a woman in, in, in lingerie. Okay, so again, cash dividend is when you get paid cash, usually quarterly. They announce it. That's where the DERP declaration X record payable, right? Declaration a day. They announce it, the rec they announce and they name the record day. That's the day you have to be an owner of record. The day before that is the X day. That's the day you if you buy it on the X day, you don't get the dividend. Remember, X dividend, ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-wife, X dividend without. Then P, D-E-R-P, declaration, X, record, then payable. Payable is a date that they actually pay the dividend. What's a cash equivalent? It's something that can be readily turned into cash. T-bills, CDs, money markets, and stuff like that, money market funds and stuff. Cash equivalents are anything that can be turned easily, very, very quickly into cash. Like I always joke that technically you could walk into a bank with $100,000 worth of T-bills and be out of there in five minutes or so with 100 grand in cash. It's just that liquid, okay? Cash flow, that's what the company gets minus any money paid out. So if we bring in money, but we pay out. So if you're bringing 100 grand, but we pay out 30 grand in expenses, our cash flow is 70 grand. It's basically net income plus depreciation or depletion, okay? So net income is how much we get. So we bring in 100, we spend 30, we have 70. Then any kind of depreciation or depletion we come out, that's going to take out of that. Good. A cease and desist order. That's what an administrator can do when it appears that a person is going to commit a violation or did. You send a notice and say, please stop what you're doing. It actually has no bite, right? So if they just go, screw you, I'm going to keep doing it. Then what would happen is then the administrator who really can't do anything, you know, they threaten you and throw you, shake their hands at you and say, you stop that, you young whippersnapper. They would say that, but they can't do anything. Well, it just got blurry, right? So I'm moving too much. It got blurry. So then they would go to 
the court and have the court issue an injunction should they be enjoined, which then has bite of the court as legal ramifications. So a CD is where you deposit money with a banker in a security for a set amount of time and it pays you interest. They can be short-term, they can be long-term. The short-term ones probably pay at the end. They might pay you. Um, but the whole point of a CD is it's very safe, very usually very short-term. And it's usually a money market under a year. Over a year, it's obviously not. And if it's over a year, it can pay income. If they buy, if they do a market CD or like a negotiable CD, there are other feats. We're not going heavy into that here. I'm just saying what a CD is. It's a short term. Basically, you put money with a bank and you get it back at the end of the term. You can then reinvest it and buy new ones if you want. Whatever. Short term debt. What is a chartist? That's like a technical trader. They look at charts, trends, patterns. They're looking at charts to determine like the 200-day moving average, support, resistance. That's a technical trader. They use the movements of the stock to determine where it's going next. Obviously, efficient market theory doesn't believe any of that shit, okay? We'll get to that. So the point is, a chartist is a technical trader who looks at charts and tries to predict the next movement based on that. You look at support, resistance, breakouts, all that stuff, okay? What's a Chinese wall? So a Chinese wall is known as an information barrier. A lot of times big companies, like they have to have some sort of Chinese wall. And it's not racist because it's basically based on the fact that the Great Wall of China surrounds, you know, was supposed to, is in, invincible. You can't get through it. So they just called it that you're on either side of the wall. Like investment banking can't be with research. They have to have a Chinese information barrier so they can't talk to each other. It prevents the spread of information. Of, Inside information. So an information barrier or Chinese wall is there between different departments to keep them separated so they can't share information or have conflicts of interest. A lot of times they'll have these information barriers between small departments, even if they don't have to, so that if I get an order in this and you're on the other side of the wall and you get an order in that, we don't have to worry about front running or anything like that because we're separate. Like if I get an order from a customer to buy and you're on the other side of the wall and far enough away from me, you can buy stock without worrying about being front running because you don't know about it. What's churning? Churning is excessive trading, okay? Churning is when you excessively trade an account. You need this to see the word excessive or unsuitable, whatever it is. Remember, they look at stuff to determine if you're churning. They look at like what the character of the account. Are there, is the person rich? What's the rich, rich? Is, what's the objectives? What they do not look at is gain or loss. Gain or loss has nothing to do with whether you're churned or not. You can make money, and they can still um, be, what do you call it? They can still be considered a churning even if they make money. Closed-end investment company. What is it? So we have open-end and closed-end. An open-end is a mutual fund. I think we've an open-end is a mutual fund. You buy it at NAV plus a sales charge. It trades once a day. They constantly issue. You should know this by now. A closed-end fund, a closed-end fund, it issues shares one time. They pack it, you know, they issue the shares, and then it's on the exchange. And if you want to buy shares of it, remember, they're both closed and open and are actively managed by a rich portfolio manager. He or she lives in Greenwich and makes way too much, or Hamptons. They make a lot of money. They're an investment advisor managing the portfolio, which means they have to be federally covered advisor. But the closed end fund issues shares one time. And then if you want to buy them, you have to buy them on the market at based on supply and demand. You buy at the ask, you sell at the bid, and they charge you a commission or a markup markdown. You can short them. You can buy them on margin. Of the, all that stuff you can't do with a mutual fund. Open-ended issue shares constantly. You buy at NAV plus a sales charge. It's priced at the end of the day. No margin. Okay, so we have opening, opening sale, opening purchase, whatever it is. Opening and closing. So if you have an option or even any position, if you create a position, 
It's an opening. So if you buy an option for the first time, that's an opening buy. If you short an option for the first time, that's an opening sale. So if you do an opening buy to create an option, how do you get rid of it? You have to sell it. That's a closing sale. So an opening buy followed by a closing sale. Jumping down on the other side. So if we short an option for the first time, doesn't matter, call it put, that's an opening sale and that's followed by a closing purchase. So it's always, it's always going to be opening, then closing, and then it's either buy, then sell, or sell, then buy. That's the way it works. And closing means get rid of it. Okay, what's a coincidence of so the indicators, right? So we have three types of indicators. We have leading, lagging, and coincident. We've put them all together. A leading indicator, it's like the stock market, it tells you where we're going to be in the next six to 12 months. I explain that all the time. Everyone was trying to figure out, not everyone, people who didn't know. Sounds like I'm an elitist, but I'm not. Um, they didn't know why was the stock market ripping up during the pandemic because they weren't thinking about now it's predicting the future when they think the, the, the vaccine will be out and all that stuff will be out of it. So that's why the stock market was ripping up because it's a leading indicator. A coincidence is telling us where we are, like employment, personal income, industrial production. Those are all coincident. That's telling us where we are. Then we have lagging telling us where we were. That's like in, um, Corporate profits, they reported at the end of the year in a 10K, right? So leading is telling us where we were. Coincident is telling us where we are. Lagging is telling where, where we were. Did I say that? Leading is telling us where we're going. Coincident is telling us where we are. Lagging is telling us where we were. Okay, good. What's collateral? Collateral is like when you borrow money, you have to put up collateral, okay? That's, it's not collateral damage, it's collateral, okay? So collateral is when you put up something to borrow. So if I went to go borrow... $50,000. They said, we need some collateral. I put my two or three cars on there as collateral that if I don't pay it, they pay me out. They sell that, okay? They sell that out from under me. Okay, so what's a CMO? A CMO is a mortgage-backed security. You should know this, some of this by now, if you're taking this exam, but a mortgage-backed security or a CMO is big picture. When you buy a house, you pay a mortgage, you're paying into the mortgage. The bank who you're paying the mortgage to is getting an income. They sell that to someone else who's now getting the income. And what they do is they put a bunch of mortgages in a pool and then somebody buys pieces of this. I can probably put the video up here to explain it. But I have, I'll put it, maybe I'll put a link in the description. What is a CMO? So a CMO is a mortgage-backed security. It has prepayment risk, it has extension risk because if rates drop, people refinance your mortgages and all of a sudden your income stream drops and you're getting monthly income. Remember that you're getting monthly income. Okay, a collateral trust bond. Let's talk about secured bonds, okay? We have unsecured bonds, which are debentures. Unsecured corporate bonds are debentures. Then we have secured bonds. We have three types that we think about. We have mortgage bonds, which are, they're not, mor not mortgage-backed securities. They're mortgage bonds. They're just backed by property. So if I default on the bond, they sell the property to pay the investors, the creditors. Then we have an equipment trust certificate, which is basically we issue a bond and we use like trains, planes, a fleet of cars, boats as collateral equipment, as tractors, as collateral for the bond. And if we default, they sell that and hopefully that's enough to pay for it. Then we have a collateral trust certificate where I'm a company, I have a portfolio of securities or something. I'm going to use that as collateral for the bond. And if I default, they sell that. Hopefully it's still around and get that. Okay. Commercial paper. What's commercial paper? It's a short term unsecured. It's a short-term unsecured bond. It's 270 days or less. It's issued at a discount. Like a financial company would say, oh, we need money for the next nine months. So they'll issue a commercial paper for like, you know, you know, a million dollars, $999,000, and then they'll pay back a million at the end or something like that. So it's, it's short-term 
unsecured promissory note. We promise to pay you. It's 270 or less, so then it's exempt. Now, it's exempt from federal, but to be exempt from state also, it has to be 270 days or less, top three credit rating agencies, and it has to be a minimum denomination of 50 grand. That means you cannot buy a $30,000 commercial paper. It's 50 grand, so it keeps the retail people out. So what's a commission? Okay, so commission, or a let's go along with that. So commission is, remember, ABC, agent broker commission. A commission is when you act as an agent and you charge a commission for doing a trade. So if I do a trade for you, I'm the middleman, I'm acting as an agent, I'm going to charge you a commission. You buy stock at 50, you bought it at 50, I find a seller for you, I don't do it myself. I charge a commission on top of it, much like if you go to buy a house, the agent's going to charge a commission on top of the price of the house, as opposed to a markup, markdown is when you act as a principal. So if you give me an order to buy stock at 50, I'm going to sell it to you out of my own portfolio, out of my own inventory. I'm going to sell it to you and I'm going to charge you a markup. You give me an order to buy stock at 50, I'm going to sell it to you at 50 and a quarter. That's a principal, okay? Principal transactions. Remember, ABC, agent, broker, commission, and then PDM, principal, dealer, markup. What's common stock? That's basically just the ownership of the company. That's the one you see on there, on the on CNBC and stuff like that. It's the lowest form of ownership. You own stock. You buy it. You can buy shares. You If you buy all the shares of a company, you're actually the owner. Um you, it's just basically the ownership of the company. It's a form of equity. It's the lowest one. It's the last to be paid, but it does have the highest risk and highest reward because as it basically it moves with this company. If the company does well, it goes up. Hopefully the company goes down, it goes down. So we have two types of trust. We have a complex trust and a simple. A complex trust means that you you set up the trust. We have it, you know, we I'll talk about trust later in general, but a trust is like an account that you set up that you put your money in. Let's go through it. So it's either revocable or irrevocable first. So an irrevocable trust is you set it up. You're the grantor. You name a trustee. You name your beneficiaries. Could even be you for all of them. And you put the money in. And if it's irrevocable, once you put the money in, it's up to the trustee to decide where the money goes. You can't take it back. But it is not taxable to you anymore. It's not in your estate. It's just on the trust end. Then we have an that we have a revocable one. Same thing, but you put the money in, but it's still yours. You can take it back anytime you want. But remember, so we have, you put the money in. If it's irrevocable or revocable, the trustee is going to manage it for the beneficiary or the beneficiaries as a whole, not just one or the other. Um, if there's more than one beneficiary, they manage it for, as a whole. Um, so that's revocable versus irrevocable. Revocable, you can take it back. You can revoke it. Or irrevocable, once it's in there, you never touch it again. Now, the other part of it is there's a complex and simple. Complex trust means that if, if, if you put money in and it earns, you can either decide to pay it out based on the rules or let it build. You don't have to do anything. A simple trust, all of the growth has to be distributed every year. So a, so a complex, it can hold it and let it grow. A simple trust, every all the earnings, not the corpus, not the body, not the principal, but the earnings of the trust have to be distributed each year. Okay, so let's think about back to the mutual funds. Conduit theory, ha, 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 okay. Conduit theory is the fact that if you have a mutual fund, they pass through the gains, and that's it. They pass through 90% of the gains. As long as a mutual fund passes through 90% of the gains, you, the investor, are going to get the money that's never been taxed yet, and then you're going to pay taxes on it. The reason that's a big deal is it's like a corporation. A corporation, you know, they earn money, they pay taxes on it, and then they pay you, so it's double tax because it's taxed on their end. And then on yours. So 
in a corporation, the IRS pretty much takes like 70% of the money. It's crazy. And they still don't have enough. Hmm. Okay, so a conduit theory means it's flow through, like a conduit. I don't have a pipe. But like if you went through here, the money goes through the conduit, goes right through the mutual fund and right to you, 90% of it at least. Okay, what's a confirmation? A confirmation is basically after you do a trade, you have to get a confirm usually by completion of the trade, which is settlement, that lists like in general, not good the whole thing, but what you what you bought or sold, how many shares, what it cost you, whether... um what the commissions were, the net prices. If it's a bond, whether it's callable or not, it's going to give you the yield to maturity or the yield to call. It'll give you maybe the exchange where it's executed or not. It'll give you the date, but it doesn't have to give you the time, but it does have to tell you that it's available. It'll have your account number and it'll have the name of the firm and all that on there. It's a confirm. Okay, it's a confirmation. Okay, so what's a constant dollar plan? It's basically a formula of investing in, you're investing in a portfolio and you're keeping a fixed dollar amount of each asset class, not a ratio, a fixed dollar amount. So what happens is if it goes to, if what happens is if it goes too high or low, they have to either add or subtract. So they're keeping it at a dollar, not a percentage they're keeping it at a dollar, like 30 million in this or 2 million in that. And that's, if it gets too high, they'll rebalance it, bring it, sell it to bring it back to that. Or if it's too low, they'll buy more to bring it up to that. They always want to keep it at a fixed dollar. Literally have no idea why someone would do that, but whatever. Okay. A constant ratio plan is basically the same thing, but it's everything's on a ratio, like percentages. Okay. 30% this, 30% that, 20% this. It's always going to be that. And then every quarter or so, they'll rebalance it if it gets out of whack and bring it back to those ratios. That's sort of passive. That's a type of passive management. Okay, what's the CPI? Consumer price index. It's the measure of inflation. Right now, we all know that if you're if it's 2023 and you're watching this, we know inflation's been crazy. CPI is a consumer price index. It measures inflation. Okay, consumption is basically the purchase and use of goods by households. It's what we that it's not so much eating, but it's buying and using services and goods. Okay, contraction. Okay, so we have the four four um, business cycles: expansion, peak contraction trough so contraction is when it's dropping expansion is when the gdp is rising things are getting better i might have done this already things are getting better that's when the federal reserve will tighten and then we get to peak that's where the top it's going up it's still slowing down that's where disinflation happens what's disinflation that's when we still have inflation but it's less it's going up like it was eight percent seven percent six percent it's still going up but at a less rate, that's kind of what we have now. So everyone's like, oh, inflation's better. No, it's still going up at a ridiculous rate. It's just not going up as fast. Okay, that's, so contraction is when it's dropping. I got an entire drop, right? Whatever they're called, a rant. So expansion, peak, contraction. Contraction is when the GDP is dropping, the economy is getting worse, a long one turns into a recession. And during that time, the treasury will loosen the economy. They will buy treasuries from the bank to inject money and they will lower rates to make it easier to borrow. What's a control person? A control person is a, is a partner, officer, director, the pods, or a 10% owner of more than 10%. I shouldn't say 10%. So someone who is more than 10% or a pod, partner, officer, director, they usually have... Um, if it's for an investment company, it's usually they own more than 25% of the vote. I think the same thing for broker-dealers. By the way, also... The spouse of a control person is an affiliate or control person. No, they have the rules that if it's if they if the control person of a public company and they want to sell their shares, they have to follow the 144 rules. They can sell the greater of one percent of the assets, one percent of the outstanding, the four weeks trading volume, four times a year. Wow, one four four, greater of one percent of the the greater of one percent of the outstanding shares, 
four weeks trading volume, four times a year, which is every 90 days, kind of built into the price. Control security. It's basically shares. I've never really heard someone talk about it that way, but a control stock is control stock is owned by control people. So they have to follow the 144 rules. Conversion parity. So convertibles. Let's talk about convertibles. So convertibles are securities that turn into common stock. Okay. I don't think on the 65 or 66, you have to do the math, but we have videos on that. So convertible bonds or or preferred or convertible securities are securities that turn into common stock. So they will have a conversion ratio, which is how many shares you get. They will have a conversion price, which is at what price it gets converted at, which is just a number to figure out the ratio. And then the ratio will tell you how many shares you get. And then you're going to multiply that ratio. We should all know how to do this. You're going to use that ratio, multiply it times the common stock price, multiply the ratio times the common stock price to get um, what the parity is, the conversion parity. And then if that number, so think about this way, I buy a bond, it turns into common stock. If the amount of shares that I could turn into is worth more than the bond, I would convert the bond into the stock because they get a discount. If the value of the stock is less than the value of the bond that's trading at, I would not convert because I'd be losing money. So convertible bond is bond that's convertible. Convertible preferred is a preferred that's convertible. Bonds pay income every six months. It's a debt. Preferreds pay quarterly and it's an equity. Okay, convexity. Don't have to do, go crazy on it. It's probably a wrong answer. But remember that we know that duration is how volatile a bond is, right? So the problem is the difference between a, an eight-year bond and a 10-year bond and a 12-year bond we know that the 10-year and the 12-year bond move more, but it's not a straight line. So it's kind of curved, okay? So like maybe the 10 moves a lot more. It's not exactly equal. Like if you have a six-year, an eight-year, and a 10-year bond, they're not exactly the amount. So like the eight-year may move three times as fast as a six, and then 10 may move four times as fast as the eight. So it's not, and that's what convexity measures, basically the curvature of the speed at which things move. It's, again, you don't have to do the math. No, I always say this one. Duration is how much a bond moves. Convexity is how fast it moves. I don't think it's exact, but it's kind of showing you the difference between the two. Okay, cooling off period, right? The cooling off period is what? When we issue a stock for the first time under the Act of 33, we'll file the registration statement. And then we start a 20-day cooling off period, that 20-day cooling off period. Um, the 20-day cooling off period, we can't sell the bonds. We can't sell the stock. We can get indications of interest. We can set out a red herring. We can even register it in the various states, blue sky. We can't sell it, tank money or anything. But we can do that during the 20-day cooling off period. At the end of the cooling off period, the SEC declares it effective. They don't approve, never fucking approve. Remember, no regulator ever approves anything ever. So they just declare it effective. They say, hey, we didn't find anything wrong with it. It's not a big deal. Okay, a corporate account or a partnership account. A corporate account is, is a corporate account. You have to have certain documents. You have to have the articles of incorporation or the charter. And you have to have a name of someone. Okay, you have to have a name of someone who can place orders, what they call an authorized representative, authorized trader, or authorized individual who can place orders for the corporation because it's not an individual. Now, if it's a partnership, it's not a joint account. It's a partnership. It's for a partnership. And you need probably the signature of the GP and the partnership agreement. What's a corporate bond? A corporate bond is an issue, a bond debt issued by a corporation. So remember, a bond is when the investor lends money to an issuer. So corporate bonds are issued by corporates. Then we have munis and we have treasuries. They all have their own things. Corporates, fully taxable. Like Tesla would issue a bond. And muni is like a city or state issuing a bond. And normally, if you buy it in the same state you live on, it's tax-free. 
the interest at least is. And then treasuries, they're issued by the federal government. The thing about them is they have no default risk, pretty much, except for what's going on now with the debt ceiling. There's no default risk. But so corporates, you pay tax on every level. Munis, you may you don't pay federal, but you might pay state unless you buy it in your own state. And treasuries, you pay federal tax, but not state tax. What's a corporation? It's one of the types of setting up. So we have different types. We have sole prop, which is just like one person. Okay, just one person setting up. You have no, you have no limitation of the risk. You have unlimited risk. It's super free. Like I, when I first started teaching, I did a sole prop because it didn't matter. I didn't have risk or anything. Now I'm doing other projects, so I have to create something else. So a sole prop is just me alone. You can't really transfer it. And there's no continuity of life. When I die, it's over. Then I can go up to an LLC. An LLC is a limited liability corporation um, or company, whatever you want to call it. Um, they can have as many members as you want, but it has um, limited liability. Like if you're a member, you can't, you can only be sued up. You can only lose what you put in unless you're committing crimes. Um, if one member, you can have a single member LLC or hundreds. Okay. We have, they pass through the gains and losses. That's the thing about these, the next three things I talk about, they pass through the gains and the losses. That's the, what does that mean? That means we get the money, the partners get the money, not the corporation or the company. And they also get losses. They don't owe the money. They get a, they get a piece of paper. That's a write-off. So LLCs, partnerships, and S-corps all pass through. So that's an LLC. A partnership, there's two types. There's a general partnership, which is just partners. General partners, they get together. It can be verbal. We run a business, but if it just says partnership, it doesn't mean limited. If it just says partnership, that means that they have unlimited risk and they can all run the company, but the partnership. If it's a limited partnership, we have limited partners that just put money in. No, they can only lose what they put in, but they have, can't run it. And then general partners of the GPs and LPs. They have a GP who runs it and an LP who just drops the cash. LPs can only lose what they put in. GPs can take on unlimited liability. They're also paid last, okay? But if they just say limited partnership, it's an LP-GP thing, you have to have one of each. If they just say the word partnership, it means general partnership, which means everyone has unlimited risk and everyone can be involved. Keep that in mind. An S-Corp is a corporation with up to 100 investors, 100 shares, I should say. Husband, There's a lot of nuances to that, but it's fine, 100, 100 shares. All the shareholders have limited loss. They can only lose what they put in, and it does pass through gains and losses like the other two. Then we have the C-Corp. Basically, every company you've ever heard of is a C-Corporation. They do not pass through. It's the actual, it's the most expensive. It's the best way to raise a lot of money. You can have an unlimited number of shares pretty much. And you can just you authorize them, you issue them. They're outstanding, all that crap. Um, as they get paid, the actual corporation pays taxes at the corporate rate. And then they pay dividends and then you pay taxes. So the problem with the corporation is it's double tax. But the good part is it's the best way to raise a lot of money. Okay, Correlation. Correlation is how two assets run with each other. So it's highly cor a correlation of one means they go up together, down together, don't move together, all the same. You don't want that. You don't want positively correlated. It goes one to negative one. One means they're perfectly correlated the same way. Zero means they're not correlated. And then negative one means they go opposite the same amount together. Okay. You don't, you don't, you want non-correlated. You want this. Because they want diversification. You want this to go up and this not. You do not want them to go together because good is good, but bad is really bad. You don't want them negative correlation because how can you make money if they both go the same amount the opposite ways? So you want non-correlated assets. They have nothing to do with each other. That's perfect correlation. Okay. So perfect correlation is when they move together. 
I guess perfect negative, neg pure negative is negative one. They move exactly opposite. What you want is non-correlated, so they have nothing to do with each other. Good, okay. I think we talked about this already. Cost basis is what you paid for something. Cost basis is what you paid. You bought it 20, they have adjusted cost basis. Like if you put more money in or you get payouts and stuff like that, but cost basis is what you pay. Proceeds is what you sell it for. And the difference is your capital gain or loss, okay. Coupon yield, it's like, so if you coupon nominal stated and interest mean the same thing. Coupon nominal stated and interest all mean the same thing. It's the coupon rate. So if you buy a 5% bond, it's paying 5% of par. If par is a thousand, it's paying 5% of a thousand. It's 50 bucks. The coupon never changes. Remember that once a bond is set or a preferred is set with a coupon, that's it. Uh, covered securities, those are federal covered securities. That's like, um, for the most part, munis are a little bit if they're a certain way, but we're not going to talk about that. We got, well, we will. So mutual funds are covered. New York Stock Exchange listing. Shares sold to shares sold to qualified purchases, with, which is $5 million or more. Um, Reg D506C is federally covered. And munis issued in another state. So munis are always exempt. But if you buy a municipal bond in your state, it's exempt because of the USA state law. But if you buy a, a muni bond issued in another state, it's still exempt, but because of federal law. That's why it's a federal covered security. Okay, what's credit risk? It's the same as default risk. Credit risk and default risk are the same, that if you buy a bond that's not a treasury, you have credit or default risk. It's a risk that they won't pay you. How do we measure that? We have the credit ratings. You know, AAA, AA, A, triple B, those are the, those are the best. Did I do this already? I feel like I did, but whatever. So then we have Moody's is trip A, little A, little A. Um, a, 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 I've done this already. I've done this many times, the bond ratings. So that's, so we measure credit or default risk by the bond ratings. The higher it is, the less risk we have. Triple A is the best. They have hardly any default risk. Anything below triple B is speculative or junk. They have higher credit or default risk. So what's a credit spread? Okay, so that's on this test. A credit spread is basically when you have a buy and a call, you have a, two calls, you buy one, sell the other, and the sell call is more expensive than the buy call. So you're bringing in money, or if it's two puts, buy and sell a put, the sell is more expensive. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a credit spread, which is the difference between um, the different routine yields and two securities. So like if we look at, that's the interest rates, that's the years. So we have a bond. That's treasuries, you know, the shorter term, lower rate, higher term. Then we have corporates, okay? So these two, so the spread here, this corporates will always be higher than the treasuries, always, because these have no risk, these have risk, default risk. So what happens is people measure the difference. And if it gets narrower, okay, that means the company, the con, con, the, oh my God, I can't speak. The economy is getting better because people are buying the corporates, forcing the price up and the yield down. And they're selling the treasuries, putting the price down and the yield up. So getting closer together is, is means economy is getting better. But if they're getting wider apart, that means that means they're running to safety. They're selling the corporates and buying the treasuries. So that's a sign of a bad economy. So if you see the yield, the yield or credit spread widening, that's a sign of a bad economy. If it's narrowing, it's a sign of a good economy. Okay, then there's prefer there's different types of preferreds, right? So we have regular preferred, it's preferred stock that pays you every quarter. Boom, boom, boom. And it's consistent. It's like a fixed income. They don't have to pay. They're supposed to pay. But what if we miss a year, right? So if we miss a year or two, it's fine. I mean, it's not a big deal. You can, there's nothing you can do about it. But they made it. To, so we don't owe you the money, right? So if I buy a 5% preferred 
and you don't pay me in 2020 and it's now 2021, there's literally nothing I can do. I can yell at you and say, please pay me, but you don't have to, unless it's cumulative preferred. Cumulative preferred means that even if they miss the previous three or four years, before they can pay anything to the common, they have to make up all the all the past payments. So if they miss my payment in 2019, 2020, and 2021, in 2022, they got to pay me. Or if they want to pay, if they want to start catching up and pay the common, they got to make up all those past years. That's cumulative preferred. Participating preferred means you have a normal coupon four percent. You should know. You should know the basics, right? So normal four percent preferred is paying four percent. But if the company has a good year, like say we have a really good year, they'll give you a little bit more that quarter or that year. So you have four percent. Maybe it bumps up to five percent. You get an extra percent or two, and then it goes back down to the original when they have a good year. So you get to participate. In the um, you get to participate in the earnings in the earnings growth of a company if they do well. Okay, that's so the cumulative, and then they prefer, and then we have participating. Cumulative, you pay the past dividends. Participating, you get to participate in the earnings, so they give you a little bonus if they have a good year. Okay, current assets. Current assets are assets that we have, cash and other assets that were expected. We can convert into cash or get within the next twelve months. Okay, so basically, um, cash. Accounts receivable, inventory, and prepaid expenses. That's all stuff that we're going to get back. And reason prepaid expenses are, so let's say I pay the rent over the next four months. I prepay that. I'm getting that service over the next four months. I'm getting the rent. I get to stay. That's why. Current liabilities are what we owe. We owe that in a year. That's current liabilities, accrued wages payable, a current part of long-term debt. So if we have a bond and we pay, you know, we owe that money, what we owe in this year with interest payments, that would be considered a current liability. And remember, so current ratio is current assets divided by current liabilities. Quick ratio is current assets not including inventory divided by current liabilities. And working capital is current assets minus current liabilities. Current market value is really just what the stock is worth right now. CMV, they call it current market value. I did current ratio. Okay, current yield. Now, let's see. So current ratio is the same as before. I just gave it to you. Okay, so current yield, okay, current yield is what basically what you're earning when you expend, when you buy a bond. So if you buy a 5% bond and you pay 900 for it, you're getting 50 bucks. Because remember, the coupon is always based on par. So if you buy a 5% bond, you're getting 50 bucks. If you paid 900 for it, you're still getting 50. So what's your return? You're going to do 50 divided by 900. You buy a 5% bond for 90 or 900, Okay. So you get the current yield, you're going to say, what, what's it? What am I earning? So remember, as my one friend said, he said, current yield is like electricity. Electricity has amps to do annual divided by market price. So you're going to do annual divided by market price to get your yield. Let's do it. 50, which is what we're getting, divided by 900. That gives me 5.5%. So this is my current yield I'm earning. I Even though I'm getting 5%, I don't remember, I only paid... I only paid, I put a comma in, I'm an idiot, right? Okay, I only paid $900 for it. So there we go. So I'm earning, my yield is, it's a little bit more than that, but it's my current yield is 5.55555%. I'm not writing that out. So that's the whole point here is that a current yield is going to be what you're personally earning based on this. This is paying you 50 bucks. So whether you pay 800 or 10,000 for this bond or say 1200 for the bond, you're still getting 50 bucks. What you're earning, what your ratio is, what your current yield is, this divided by that. So it's annual divided by the current market price, not the original market price, the current market price. A custodial account, a custod I can never say that. 
A custodial account is basically where a custodian is on behalf of someone else. Usually it's a minor, like an UPMA account or a UGMA or a UTMA account. That's a custodian account, custodial, where your job is you have a fiduciary responsibility for someone like a minor or even somebody that's incapacitated. Usually it's a minor account. The custodian is an institution or a person that is in charge of that kind of account. That's one thing. The other type a custodian, that's a custodian. But the other type of custodian is like a bank or a broker dealer that's holding cash for a broker dealer or an IA or a mutual fund or something like that. Custodian is actually holding cash and securities on behalf of someone. Yeah, you can't just be Joe and do it. It has to be a real broker dealer, bank, something like that. What's custody? Okay, so custody is having control. It's not getting the kids, right? Okay, but it's having control or of an asset. So if you have like full discretion, that's custody. Okay. If you have, if you're named the trustee in an account, that's custody. If you accept a check and don't forward or return it within three days, that's custody. They figure you're holding the money. Um, if you accept prepaid fees of $500 or more for six months, a prepaid fee six months before you do the advisory service of $500 or more, that's custody. Those are all things that are custody. If you have an omnibus account, you're the advisor and all you have an you're the advisor you have an account with a broker dealer one account in your name as the advisor and you have a bunch of accounts with people with money with you you have custody because you're controlling it if you if you the advisor send statements to the clients instead of the broker dealer that's custody and there's a lot of rules on that so if you have custody you have to notify the administrator you have to put up a surety bond unless your net cap or net worth is high enough you have to send your financials you have to get audited audited financials a surprise audit unannounced uh, um you have to send a um if the letter or no okay and then you have to send a quarterly statement to your clients telling them where their money is that's custody there's a couple more things but that's you have to notify everyone that you have it okay what's a customer anyone who opens an account with a broker dealer okay it could be a account it could be an individual or a person it can't be broker dealers are not customers which is interesting okay the statement, so what do you have? The customer statement, that's what we end up, we send out quarterly. There's no monthly. A lot of firms do it, but there's no requirement to send a monthly statement. The Even the whole, act, we have activity, it's monthly, that's not a thing. So statements are quarterly. You send a quarterly statement, it lists how much you have, what you've done in the last quarter, or just a statement on everything you did. And it's going to tell you what you've done. And sometimes they ask questions about fraud, like, Sometimes brokers, when they had a bad month or something for their clients, they would send a fake statement. Totally legal. That's fraud. They should be in jail for that. But that's a sign of fraud. If all of a sudden you get a, if your statement doesn't match what you're, your confirms and what you expect, you reach out to them and you have to say, listen, what's going on? Okay. Cyclical industry. A cyclical industry is basically, it's an industry that moves with the cycles, like retail stuff. Um, I think fashion. Um, like automotive, things like that. When the economy is going well, they do well. And when the economy is going to do bad, they don't do so well. That's the opposite of defensive, okay? So like defensive is like, that's like cigarettes, alcohol, food, shit like that. Those are all like, they're pretty steady. Utilities, they're steady. They're not going to do great in a good economy or, ba or bad in a bad economy. They're just like staples. People always need to take drugs, pharmaceutical. They always need to eat. They like to drink alcohol. They like to smoke. And they need to see which is utility. Okay. Those are all defensive securities that never really go. Okay. So that's A through C. Um, I'll try to do the, the rest of the alphabet over the next couple of days. I'd like to get one ass, one big fucking video, put it up there and have one massive video that you can just tap into what you're not. I'm going to put like, 
timestamps for the letters, not for each one, because they'll have too many. I'm going to put timestamps for all the letters. Thank you very much. And hopefully, right now, it'll go right into D without having a break. But who knows? I'm fucking lazy and I'm tired and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. So this is going to be one really long fucking video. Seriously. This could be five, six hours long. Who the hell knows? And I'm not breaking it up. I'm going to do a massive one. Put it out there. Watch what you want. I'll put timestamps through the letters. So now it's what letter? It's time for a little D in your life. Everyone needs a little D in their life. Well, I don't, but everyone needs a little D in their life. Okay. So what's a dark pool? A dark pool is basically, so think of it this way. It's an alternative trading system. So I want you to think about it like two ships passing in the night. So you put in. Okay, so I want you to think of a dark pool or a dark liquidity or whatever you want to call it as a way of doing orders without anyone knowing who you are. It's like an ECN or an alternative trading system, which, which ECNs are, um, where you don't know who puts the order in. So you, you you may put an order in and get executed and go, wait, there was no offer there. But it could happen because there's dark liquidity. But a dark pool is where you put your money in and you put your order in and then they, somebody else puts an order in. And if they kind of match up, they get executed. Other than that, nobody knows what happens. Okay, so let's think of like ECNs, dark pools, fourth market, stuff like that. Dark pools are like, it's like you put, you, you, a grange, I'm stuttering because it's a hard thing to explain, right? I mean, I see it in my head, but it's hard to get it out there. So a dark pool is like you put an order in and another institution puts an order in. And if they happen to match up where they can execute, they will, but nobody knows who the other, other side of the trade is. So let's say Jeffries in the 90s, Jeffries ran one. And they would do, it's more sophisticated now, but this explains it. So like 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3, they would say, okay, everyone who wants to put their order is in, put them in the box, in this black box, okay? And then if you put them in there, at the exact, and it would print anything that would crisscross. So like say there was 50,000 to buy at 40, and there was 50,000 to sell at 40, then that would mean a buyer and seller would match up. And all of a sudden you'd see a print for 50,000 shares because it would match up, but they would not know it was there. So here's the problem. You put into, uh, you know, 10,000 shares to buy at 40. Somebody comes in at 4,101 to sell. Well, you're not going to execute because there's a difference here, but you'll never know it was there. So that's the whole point of a dark pool is that you're staying anonymous. So you don't know who the orders are. And it's a good way, like if you're in a stock a lot, like say you're Goldman and you're buying, buying, buying a ton of shit. Well, people start realizing that. And when they see you walk in, trying to fix this out again, right? Um, when they see you, maybe it's just, I'm crooked. Um, maybe I'll just do that. If they see you in there buying, they go, whoa, you know what? Goldman's a buyer. I could probably get a couple extra pennies out of them. So they'll jack their price up a little bit and go, let's see if Goldman comes to me. But if you do it in a dark pool, nobody knows who the buyer is or the seller is. Again, I've gone way too deep, more than you'll ever need to know. But it's a way for institutions to stay anonymous while doing orders. Okay, let's talk about orders since we're here. So day orders is day orders. There's uh, GTC orders. Those are the two we're going to talk about. So a day order is an order for the day. 99% of orders are day orders. You place an order to buy 1,000 shares at 50, I automatically assume it's a day order, which means it expires at 4 p.m. 3 p.m. if you live in the, in the Midwest, right? Okay, or I guess 1 p.m. if you live in the Pacific Coast. Okay, so now, the order ends at 4 o'clock, okay? That's a day order, boom. If you have discretion, you can extend them and change them. But if you don't have discretion, like you don't have full power of attorney, and I give you a not held order, it only lasts until 4 you can't carry it to the next day. So day orders mean you place an order. I automatically assume it gets canceled at 4 p.m. automatically. What, what, and whatever you did, you did, and you have to accept it. A GTC order is good till cancel. Now, they have days that are not testable where they actually have to renew them. 
but, but a GTC order is good till cancel. That means I'm giving you the order. I put GTC on it very rarely and it stays. It goes day by day by day and it stays there. And the reason you do that is because yeah, I want you to think when you have an order book, it's always first come, first serve. So if you go in to buy a share at 40 and I do, and you're a half a second ahead of me, a millisecond, if you want to say, ahead of me, you will get completely done before I buy anything. It's kind of like when you go to buy uh, concert tickets from Taylor Swift, right? The people ahead of you get to buy all they want before you get even in. Okay, so that's there's a problem there, but it every day it resets. So you put an order in, 99% are day orders. So if you put an order in at 10 a.m. and I put in at 10.01, I'm behind you. But if I said it is GTC and we don't execute, yours cancels it for my stays. And the next morning, I'm already probably in the front of the book. I'm in the front of the line. So that's what a GTC order does. It stays there over time. You would not do a market order because market order is like any price. There's no price limit. So a market order, you would not do GTC because you're pretty much going to be executed the same day. Okay, we talked about principal versus dealer. Remember, so ABC, agent, broker, commission, and then dealer, principal, dealer, markup. Like it. Debenture. What is a debenture? It's an unsecured corporate bond. Unsecured corporate bond. And a lot of it, yeah, that works. So it's an unsecured corporate bond. Okay, what's a debit spread? A debit spread is a, is a call or put spread where the amount of money you pay for is more than what you receive. So- I'll show both. So let's say we have a spread is going to be buy, you know, buy a 50 call. I hate when this happens. Buy a 50 call at seven and sell a 60 call at four. Okay. So in this case, I've spent seven and brought in four. So I have a debit of three. And here's a little trick here. If you want to know bullish or bearish, find the dominant option. So since you buy... Since this is the dominant option with the bigger premium, that defines the spread. If whatever this is, so this is bullish, so then so is the spread. And buy means debit, sell means credit. So if the dominant is a buy, that's a debit spread. So this is a debit, it's a bullish spread because this is bullish. Now, let's change this up and make this a, you know, it has to go this way. You can't just willy-nilly it, okay? I'm going to change that to, we'll change that to 14, Okay. So now this would be a credit spread because the sell has a bigger premium. So this since selling a call would be bearish. This can work on puts and calls too, puts, both put spreads and call spreads. So if you sell, this, if this is the bigger premium, that's a sell. So then that's a credit. And in this case, since selling a call is bearish, the spread is bearish. So this is a bear spread also. Okay, debt, a debt security is any kind of time as opposed really what we have, we have equity of debt. That's kind of it, right? So equity is when you have ownership, it's common and preferred, and debt is when you borrow money. So debt is when the company borrows money from the investors. So debt is when the company borrows money from the investors. So it's like, even if it's a government, so the entity does. So commercial papers, short-term debt, bonds, debentures, um, munis, are, are debt, uh, T-bills, T-notes, T-bonds, tips and strips, those are all forms of debt. Those are all types of debt, and it just means you owe the money to someone. You borrow the money versus giving that ownership. Like, have you ever watched Shark Tank? Like, they want, you know what, I want $20,000 for 10% of my company or something like that. And then maybe Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, comes in and says, well, how about this? How about instead of you giving up equity, I give you a loan, and I get a royalty, blah, blah, blah. But I give you a loan, and you pay me back, and I get my money back, and they make interest on it. That's debt, and it, 
And he go, sometimes you'll hear him pitch and go, look, you don't want to give up equity. So let, let me lend you the money. I'll help you out. And then I'll take a much smaller piece of the equity. Because equ remember, equity is ownership. That's why if you watch on Shark Tank, they're always fighting over like the littlest bit. Because the more equity you have, the more control you have. Debt to equity will absolutely freaking show up on these exams. Debt to equity is how much debt we have versus how much equity we have. That's literally it. How much equity, okay? Basically, stock, we'll call it stockholders' equity, but it's really total assets minus total liabilities. That's the shareholders' equity. And then you do the debt by that, not the market value, just the amount of debt. Because if I borrow a million dollars at like 4% and rates go down, that debt's going to go up in value, market value, but it doesn't matter to me. I only owe the million. So remember, debt to equity is how much debt we have versus how much equity we have, or shareholders' equity, stockholders, whatever you want to call it. And that is and anything, a one-to-one -one means same debt, same equity. More than one-to-one, -one, you're more leveraged. Leverage means borrow, right? So more, the more you borrow, the more leverage you are, the higher the debt to equity goes. And in some industries, it's fine. In some industries, that's not good to be that high. Default, what is default? It's just don't fucking pay you, right? Like if you lent me money, your biggest risk could be that I would freaking default. Hey, um, so that's the risk. Okay, so the risk is that default or default risk, credit risk, same thing. And that we know how we measure it. So default risk is that I just won't freaking pay you the interest or the principal. Okay, what are defensive industries? Okay, defensive industries are like, the staples, I think we talked about them in the business cycles. They do fine all the time. They're always steady. So even in a bad economy, they're good to buy, okay? In a good economy, they're probably not the thing to do because you'll underperform. But they'll probably overperform. Not doing, they just, they're steady on, but the market's shitting or the economy's shitting. They're going to march on. And what's that? That's like pharmaceuticals, utilities, alcohol, food. I always forget the fifth one. It's just really, it's um, alcohol, uh, tobacco. So everyone needs to drink. Everyone needs to smoke. Everyone takes drugs. Everyone needs to see and everyone needs to eat. Okay, good. Those are staples. Defensive securities. Do not confuse that with defense industry, which is like w weapons of war. Bowie, Lockheed, uh, Pratt & Whitney. The ones who make bombs and and, and fighter jets and, sh and ships. Okay. Okay, what's defensive? So if you're a defensive investment strategy, that means you're being very conservative and you're trying to minimize your risk, okay? Basically, you're putting a lot of this stuff in bonds and cash. Like if you think the more, you're worried, the older you get, the more defensive you get. You know, I always say the best the best defense is a good offense, right? Or the best offense is a good defense. But I'm not, I don't like doing defensive. I mean, I'm a moron. I probably should be more conservative, but I, everything is in equity. Despite me being 50 something years old, I should be at 50 50, but fuck it. I'm all equity all the time. Um, so defensive is going to be you're very conservative. You're trying to minimize your risk. You're, remember, whenever you minimize risk, we've talked about Cap M and stuff. If you minimize risk, you're giving up return. That's just a pair off. That absolutely has to be the way it is. Okay, a deficiency notice. Okay, this is a deficiency notice. A deficiency notice is when the SEC says, hey, there's something wrong. Okay, you have to basically you have a registration statement, you file it, you have the 20 day review, and they come back and say, hey, something's wrong. Or if you if you register with the SEC as an investment advisor, anytime you do something and they go, wait, something's missing, there's a deficiency notice. Okay, they're just saying, hey, fix it. It's not a crime. You're not getting in trouble. Just fix the damn thing. That's all. Something's wrong. You missed a signature. The numbers don't work out. You're missing something. You did it wrong. Like when I first registered, when I first tried to create um, a form ADV part two 
for investor and advisors. Federal covered. They had just changed the rules. It used to be bullet point. Then it, it became narrative. They wanted to do it as a narrative. And every time I sent it in, I mean, I'd never done it before. I sent it in. Then they came back with a deficiency notice saying, no, it has to be this. I did that. And they go, no, another deficiency notice has to be that. I became really good friends with this person. So because we kept talking every other day until he goes, no, you need a table of contents and you need a glossary, all that crap. So there was a lot of rules on it, which are not testable. I'm just explaining that a deficiency notice isn't a big thing, big thing, big thing. It's just um, they're saying, hey, you got to fix something. OK, so let's talk about this. Um, define benefit versus define contribution. OK, define benefit plan means that, you know, it's a retirement plan qualified. You know what you're going to get. Define benefit. You know what you're going to get like a pension. Like they go, look, if you work here for 20 years, you're going to get this at the end. Okay. That's what you're going to get. We're going to pay you 20% of your salary, this much money a month. Like my buddy who's an iron worker. He worked with me on the stock exchange. And then when we all left, he went to do this. He's probably making more money now than all of us. Um, but they told him for every year you work, when you retire, we'll pay you 200 a month. So if he does 20 years, he'll get four grand a month for the rest of his life. Okay. And that's great. That's a nice, you can move to anywhere, anywhere in, uh, other in the world and never have to worry about money ever because they will pay him for life. They're defining his benefit. Does he care what they're putting in now for him? Does not give a shit. Doesn't care and it goes in pre-tax. Define contribution. That's like what we're doing, right? 401k, stuff like that, where you know what's going in. Technically, a Keo is, an HR10 is one, but we're going to go with the whole theory here. Define contribution. You know what's going in. We know what we're putting in. We know what they're putting in. Maybe a... a it doesn't matter if you know, you know, like what they're going to do over the next three years. You just know right now how much they put in. The question is, if you have a 401k, you put money in, do you know what it's going to be? Look, if you're like 22 years old and you drop 18 grand or 10 grand into a 401k, do you know how much it's going to be when you're 70? You have no idea. So you're defining the contribution, but the benefit, the ending result, you don't know. But again, defined contribution is better for younger people because they have the time to have that shit grow. Defined benefit is for older people like me. I'm an old fuck. I think I want to go to get a job at my town. They pay like, they don't pay great. Maybe they pay 70, 80 grand. I mean, oh, some people are getting well over a hundred. Um, they pay that, but then they'll, but if you work there for at least five years, they pay you 30% of your salary for the rest of your life. So it's like, wow, I could put in five years, make no money and then have a nice little nut that this way I can never have to worry about that. So as an older person, that would work for me. But as a younger person, you'd miss out. Okay, so you younger you are, defined contribution is better. Older you are, defined benefit is better. What's deflation? So let's see. So inflation is a rising of prices. Price, consumer goods, CPI, we know how to measure that. That's going up. We're dealing with it now in 22, 23. Now, moving on. If it goes up, if it's going up 9%, 9%, 9%, and then it starts going up 7 or 6%, still going up, that's called disinflation, not deflation. Don't let the news trick you into this. If the inflation's still going up but slower, it's called disinflation, not deflation. Deflation doesn't actually happen. Maybe it happened in 2009 for like a day. But deflation when prices drop, actually get lower. Like you buy eggs, the big one, gold, right? You buy eggs today at $2 a, a dozen, and then tomorrow it's $1.90. It's actually cheaper. That doesn't really happen, okay? So these prices are not dropping. They're just, so even if we get inflation back under control, these prices are here, okay? So it's just going to happen. It's just, they're not going to rise as fast anymore. So you're not, it's not, don't expect prices to drop because that's deflation and the shit does not happen. Why would you give that up? Like, I'm not going to lower my rates. Okay. Okay, Delta. It's a Greek. Okay, the Greeks. Okay, so 
The delta is a measure of how much an option will move compared to the underlying asset. So if you have a delta of 40, okay, delta of 40, for every dollar the stock moves up or down, the option will move 40 cents, 40%. Delta is a percentage. So if you have a delta of 80, for every dollar the stock moves or the underlying moves, you'll move 80 cents, 80%. So think of delta as a percentage. If it's a 30%, a 30 delta, it means it's going to move 30% of the underlying asset in the same direction. And what we mean is, what I mean by moving, in case I didn't say it, the premium. The premium will move because the strike price doesn't change. So if you have a 40 call of three, if I can do the math here, and it says a delta of 40 and the stock goes up a dollar, then you will now have a 40 call at 340 because it'll move 40 cents compared to the dollar. That's delta. Again, theory. Okay, supply and demand, right? So there's supply is what the actual stuff we have, and then we have demand. Demand, this is how we determine. So if you see a lot of demand, prices go up. That causes inflation, although we really know the government causes inflation. That's been known. I'm not just shitting on the current administration. It always happens. Um, so demand is how much people want. Supply is how much people have. If there's more demand than supply, prices go up. If there's more supply than demand, prices may go down even though I just said a second ago that it doesn't happen. But on an interim basis, commodities, it's supply and demand. The more demand, the prices go up. The more supply, prices go down. Okay, so if you ever see the thing about M1 and all that shit, so a, de a demand deposit account is something where you can just walk in and take your money out at any time, like a checking account, okay? So a demand deposit, demand deposit is like a checking account, savings account, okay? Um, because you can take your money out anytime you want and convert it into cash. Okay, so depreciation and depletion. So depreciation is when you have a man-made thing, okay? Man-made thing, and over time, it gets worth less and less and less. So you get to depreciate it. One of the greatest write-offs in the world, I have two cars that were used for business. I have to travel and all that stuff um, and carry stuff around. So I write them. All, I the, the fact that my car every year is worth less and less, I get to write that off and lower my taxes. Write-off means it's a loss, a tax loss. I get to lower my income, okay? That's depreciation. Depletion is when you use something. Crop, not crops. Definitely not crops because they grow back. Lumber, gold, oil, coal, gas. Once you use something, you can't you can't use it again. So it's being depleted. So they actually let you write off the fact that you can't use it again. So if you have 100 barrels of oil and you sell one, you get to write off on your taxes the value of one barrel of oil. That's depletion. So remember, depreciation is from man-made shit depletion is for god-made shit okay so natural resources god-made stuff is depletion actual things is depreciation buildings cars tangible shit okay what's a depression i think we did this so i don't have to go into it depression is what i feel at night no i know i'm totally fine i'm actually surprisingly happy as much as angry i seem all the time i'm actually pretty happy uh so depression is a long recession right so when you have um 18 straight months of negative gdp or six straight quarters of gdp negative gdp that's a depression we haven't had one since the 30s okay so what's a derivative the, the, the derivatives right there it's an asset it's a thing that is based on something else so it's a product it's a security hopefully sometimes not always um that is based on another underlying asset so like an option or an option a put or a call th that's values based on the stock okay futures and forwards are not securities, but their value is based on the commodity that it's tracking or the index or the stock or whatever it is. So like warrants, rights, options, futures, forwards are all considered derivatives. I still think a CMO is a derivative, but who the hell knows? Okay. Okay. Dilution. What the hell is dilution? Dilution 
is when you dilute something, right? So, like, say you have a glass, say I have this, and I pour a bunch of ice in it. It's fine at first, but eventually gets diluted. Okay, I have a drinking glass. Now, too bad it's not alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. That's the thing. Okay. You'd think I would. Um, so dilution off oh, back on my tangent. Dilution is when you lower the potency, right? So let's say you're a 10% owner of stock. Okay. And then the company issues another hundred thousand shares. If they didn't give you the right to buy more shares to keep your ownership called a preemptive right, you would be diluted because let's say a million shares outstanding. You own 100,000 shares. You're a 10% owner. If we issue another, two, not a stock split, a stock dividend, that doesn't do shit. But if we issue another million shares and we didn't give you the right to buy another 100,000, you'd now be a 5% owner because you own 100,000 shares out of 2 million. So dilution is um, where you, your ownership is diluted down to less, okay? I think if you watch the Facebook movie, whatever, the social, whatever that was called, um, they did, Zuckerberg did it to the CFO. They didn't like him, so they just diluted him. And they said, oh, you're a 5% owner? Now you're a 0.0001% owner because of the way they did it. Okay, so directed brokerage is where you decide as the customer where to send your, what brokerage account you want you to send your order to go to. So if you have, if you're an IA and I'm an experienced customer and I say, listen, I want you to send the order through TD, I'm directing it where to go. That's all. Okay, what's a discount bond? A discount bond is a bond. So we have bonds issued at par 1,000. If rates go up after it's issued, the price will go down because it's less attractive. So that's a discount bond. If you issue a bond at 5% and rates go to 7, your shit doesn't look as attractive, so the price will drop. So we have a discount. And then the other side is if you issue a 5% bond and rates drop, then your, your bond looks better, so it becomes a premium. So remember, a discount bond is when the price is below par, and a premium bond is when it's above par. I mean, it's straight up forward. That's straightforward. Okay, what's the discount rate? The discount rate, we I think we talked about these. We have four rates. Prime rate, broker loan rate, discount, Fed funds. Prime rate is the rate that the banks lend to their best customers. It's the highest rate. Then the broker loan rate is what banks lend to broker dealers for margin. That's a broker loan. That's lower. Then we have the discount rate. That's lower even still. And that's what you see in the news with the Federal Reserve is raising or dropping. That's what the Federal Reserve, that's the rate that Federal Reserve charges banks and some broker dealers for overnight lending. Then the Fed funds rate is the lowest. It's the most volatile. It moves every day. It's an average of all the rates that all of the, um, if you watch my Pomodoro method video, I should have this in another room, but it's the um, it's the rates where broke, banks and broker deals lend to each other overnight lending. That's the lowest rate. It is very volatile. Um, power of attorney and discretion pretty much just they are the same thing. There's two limits. There's, there's limited and full and there's variations in between. But basically discretion is saying, hey, you, I'm going to let you, the advisor or the investment advisor rep or the agent, make decisions on what I buy, how much, and buy or sell on my behalf. I don't have to be, you don't have to ask me every time. Regular accounts, you, the advisor, can do trades, but you have to ask me first and say, I want to do this. That's solicited. You can do that. But if it's a discretion or power of attorney, you can actually make decisions. So in power of attorney, you can choose everything. If you don't have power of attorney, the only thing you can choose is the time and the price. That means I have to choose buy, sell, the amount, and the asset, okay? So that's the three A's, the amount, the asset, and the action, okay? If you only choose time and price, you don't need you don't need discretion or power of attorney. If you choose anything more than time and price, like if you choose buy or sell or the amount or even the security, no matter what, even if I call you up and say, hey, buy a bunch of bank stocks, you're choosing the bank, so you would need power of attorney. Now, let's go on that. So if it's an agent on the broker-dealer side, you have to have it in writing, uh, in hand, before you do anything. You can't say, oh, it's in the mail. 
as on the IA side, you're allowed to actually have verbal discretion for 10 days, and then it must be followed in writing. Let's say the question comes, you they, they give you verbal power of attorney, and on the 10th or 11th day, you get nothing, okay? You don't get the paperwork. Your discretion ends that day. The, on the 10th day, it's done. You can't do any more discretion. You don't go back and bust the old trades, but you are going to do, that is where you, you're going to draw the line. Now, there's two, there's, let's talk about this a little bit. There's full and limited, right? Limited means you can do any suitable trade, but you can't really pay bills and stuff like that. And that's not custody. You may have to put a surety bond, but you don't know, it's not custody. The next step up is full power of attorney. And there's gradations of that. But let's start at the top. So full power of attorney means you can you can do any suitable trade, plus write checks, withdraw money, pay bills for the benefit of the client. You can't not pay for your trip to Rio, but it is what it is. So that's full power of attorney. You can pay bills and do the money. So if you can touch the cash or withdraw your own fees without checking with the, the client first, that's full power of attorney. That's custody. And we know the rules on custody because I did them in about maybe half an hour. Okay. So if you do something wrong, you may have to disgorge your commissions, which just means give them up. Just give them back. Disgorge means give back. We love the big words. Okay. Disposable income. That's basically um, what you can spend on. You can just spend like you have, you have savings, you have your bills, whatever left over is disposable income, which means you can spend it on crap. Okay. Okay, so now distri distributable net income. That's basically what the beneficiaries receive from a trust that would be taxable to the beneficiaries. So you pay them, they get the money, they have to pay taxes on. Diversification is modern portfolio theory anyway. So diversification is instead of buying one security, you buy a bunch of securities and spread it out to reduce your non-systematic risk. You can almost get rid of it by having that. You can lower your system. Now, you can't really lower your systematic. They try to, books try to say you can, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're across the board owning everything. The market drops, the market fucking drops. Okay. Um, we'll be back. Take a break. I have a student. So what's a diversified fund? You might see over the course of this, my beard may grow. I may get fatter. Who knows? Who knows how long this is going to take? So a diversified fund is a mutual fund. Usually it's in common stock and stuff. Here's it. Remember, 75, 5, 10. 75, 5, 10. 75, 5, 10. 75% of the assets have to be invested somewhere of the fund, have to be invested somehow. Um, no more than 5% of the fund's assets can be in any one security. So if you have a $100 million fund, $75 million at least has to be invested. No more than $5 million can have any one asset. And you can't own more than 10% of the voting stock. Because if you own more than 10%, you become control, and then you can't really sell this shit. So if you want to be called the diversified fund, I'm going to be fixing this damn hat. If you want to call it a diversified fund, 75-5-10, invested, no more than 5% of the fund's assets in any one security, and you can't own more than 10% of, of the voting stock of any company. What's a dividend? A dividend is when the corporation, we have all videos on this, you should know this, but dividends are what the, when you own common stock or preferred, you're going to get paid a part of the profits. Remember, dividends are up to the board of directors. They're not guaranteed in any way, shape, or form. Even on preferred, so not guaranteed. The board of directors has to approve it every single time. One day I'll fix it. Why am I itching? Um, and remember, the order is declaration X record payable. So it's declaration date. Then you got the X date, which is the day before the record date. Then you have payable. Remember, DERP, D-E-R-P. And remember, on the X day, the actual price of the stock will drop by the amount of the dividend to offset the fact that you're not getting it. Because remember, X means without. Ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-dividend, all without. Okay. Dividend discount model. Okay. So 
We know what DCF is, right? Discounted cash flow is taking all the future cash flows, discounting them back based on a discount rate and coming up with present value. That's for bonds and projects. For common stock, it's dividend discount model. There's dividend discount model, which is taking all the future dividends and bringing them back to find the present value. That and that's but that one that one isn't the best one because it assumes that the dividend's not changing. That's a dividend discount model. Then we have the dividend growth model, which is saying, oh yeah, we're going to do the same thing. Take all the future dividends, discount them back to today's dollars, but we're going to assume that the dividend's growing over time. Only for stocks that actually pay a consistent dividend. So like a Tesla, a Google, it wouldn't work for. But a company that actually pays a dividend consistently, that would be valuable for. If you are the dividend exclusion rule, right? So the exclusion, whatever it is, if you are how it's taxable, right? So if you have a dividend, it's taxable at ordinary income. Unless it's qualified and then you get taxed at the lower tax bracket, which means you've held it for 60 days before and after the X day. Then they drop your rate down to 15 to 20%. But here's the kicker. I know you're on the edge of your seat to find out what I was going to say, but I have to take a break here because I'm going to try to merge it. So hopefully at the end of this little clip, you can go right on. If not, just look for the second one in the series and it'll finish what I'm saying. We got this.